Welcome to Pick 6 Movies, where each season we pick six different movies that fall under one common theme. We give you some insight behind how, when, where, and why each of these movies was made. And on top of that, and no charge to you, our loyal listener, you get a full review of the movie from me, Bo Ransdell, and my old pal and co-host, Chad Cooper. This is Season 3, Episode 2. Our topic for this season is Monsters Are Universal, and we've selected six films based on the original Universal Studios classic monster films. Last week, we tackled Bram Stoker's Dracula, so it's only right for Episode 2 of this season to feature the counterpart to our old pal Drac, Frankenstein's Monster. In this case, we are taking a look at Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, directed by Kenneth Branagh. Look, I'm not going to lie to you folks, this is a little bit of a long one, but I think you'll uh, you'll agree that it's worth the ride. So, enough out of me, here's my pal Chad to tell you all about 1994's Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. In Greek mythology, there was a ten-year war between the Titans, the elder statesmen of this mythical universe, and the Olympians, the wide-eyed young upstarts with a real interest in ruling everything in existence. This epic event was known as the Battle of the Gods, among other names, and it ultimately decided which generation of gods would rule, well, everything. Ultimately, the Olympians were victorious, and their leader Zeus sent the defeated Titans to Tartarus. However, during the battle, one of the Titans, Prometheus, wasn't directly involved with the actual battle, So Zeus saved Prometheus from Tartarus and instead tasked Prometheus with creating man from water and earth. Prometheus did as Zeus asked, and over time Prometheus really grew to admire his work that was mankind. Now Zeus didn't have any grand designs on giving man any real power or ability, but Prometheus, their creator, had other ideas. Prometheus decided to steal fire from Zeus and give it to man. This act of defiance eventually enabled all the creation of civilization and all manner of progress by mankind. Zeus repaid the immortal Prometheus's defiant behavior by strapping Prometheus to a rock for all eternity where every day his liver would be eaten out by birds only to regenerate whereupon the tormented process would repeatedly happen again and again after he was ceremoniously awakened by Sonny and Cher's hit I've Got You Babe on his bedside clock radio. The classical western view of Prometheus established him as a character that represented the desire for knowledge. Prometheus is a cautionary tale of one who overreaches in pursuit of greatness and suffers dramatic, painful, unintended consequences. For writers in the Romantic era, Prometheus represented the idea of a self-identified visionary who held a desire to improve the human condition. And therefore, it is not a surprise that Mary Shelley, an author of the Romantic Era, would write a novel telling a similar story of a character that creates life, overreaches in pursuit of enlightenment and power, only to suffer greatly beyond one's intention. The commonly known title of Shelley's novel is, of course, Frankenstein. However, the full title of Shelley's masterpiece is Frankenstein, or the modern Prometheus. At the start of the 1930s, Universal Studios was down on its luck and losing millions of dollars on their projects. But along came a mysterious man in a black cape and things turned around. This international man of mystery that graced the silver screen was none other than Dracula starring Bela Lugosi. 
As a result, head of production Carl Limley Jr. decided that the studio would continue producing more feature horror films, with Frankenstein next in line. Bela Lugosi had eyes on playing Dr. Frankenstein in the adaptation, but studio heads wanted him to play the monster. Makeup tests with Lugosi proved to be unsuccessful, and Lugosi ultimately left the project. It should be noted that Lugosi would return later to play the monster in Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman ten years later when things weren't going so well in Lugosi's career. The role of Dr. Frankenstein in the original film was played by Colin Clive. Like many actors of the era, Clive made his journey to the screen by way of the stage. Clive's first motion picture was the 1930 release Johnny's Inn, which was directed by James Whale. One year later, Whale would cast Clive in his most notable role as Dr. Frankenstein. Clive would reprive this role four years later in Bride of Frankenstein, and three years later, in 1937, Clive would be dead as he suffered from severe alcoholism, tuberculosis, heart problems, and pneumonia. The role of the monster was eventually filled by Boris Karloff. Now, Karloff was no stranger to the silver screen as Frankenstein marked Karloff's 81st feature film, and it would be the movie that solidified him as a movie star. But it should be noted that his name was intentionally left out of the opening credits of Frankenstein, with his name replaced by a mysterious question mark. To play the monster, Karloff wore four-inch platform shoes that reportedly weighed 11 pounds each. He was also subjected to an extensive four-hour makeup application to achieve the role as the monster. The success of Frankenstein led Karloff to be cast as the title character in The Mummy, also for Universal Studios, but Karloff came back and reprised the role of Frankenstein's monster in two further films, Bride of Frankenstein in 1935 and Son of Frankenstein in 1939, which featured Sherlock Holmes himself, Basil Rathbone, as the namesake Dr. Frankenstein who gets all up on the business of resurrecting dead folk once again. It's in Son of Frankenstein that Bela Lugosi was cast as the character Igor, which is the first time that this character was introduced to the mythology of Frankenstein. That's right, the character Igor is not part of the original Frankenstein motion picture or the sequel Bride of Frankenstein. It should also be noted that Igor is not in the original novel. In fact, there's not a lot of Mary Shelley's fictional masterpiece that is part of the broader pop culture caricature of Frankenstein. Let's take a look at just some of the differences between the novel and the original 1931 film. Not only was Igor not in the original novel, Dr. Frankenstein didn't have a lab assistant at all in the novel. Now, there is a lab assistant in the original movie Frankenstein, but his name was Fritz. Fritz? That... They went with Fritz? That's not a name for a lab assistant. Igor. Now that's a name of a lab assistant that you can really boss around and scream at. In her novel, Shelley describes the monster as an eight-foot-tall, hideous creation with translucent, yellowish skin that barely disguised the workings of the arteries and the muscles underneath. The creature is described as having watery, glowing eyes and flowing long black hair with black lips and the most perfect white teeth. There are no neck bolts. There's no short hair flat top. There's no undersized jacket with comically short sleeves. The monster in the movie is relegated to short grunts, mumbled out like he's pretending to be some sort of John Lovett's Tonto or Kevin Nealon Tarzan. In the book, the monster can read and not just easy words like fire and bad. He reads Milton's Paradise Lost as just one of the many books that he consumes during his time away from Dr. Frankenstein. And the monster is quite eloquent in his speech. 
At one point, the creature decides that it is Dr. Frankenstein, Victor to his friends, but Dr. Frankenstein is the source for the loneliness that the creature feels, and he contemplates his own creation. He says, quote, Cursed, cursed creator, why did I live? Why in that instant did I not extinguish the spark of existence which you had so wantonly bestowed? I know not. Despair had not yet taken possession of me. My feelings were those of rage and revenge. I could, with pleasure, have destroyed the cottage and its inhabitants and have glutted myself with their shrieks and misery. That's right. From what was only an inarticulate mass of lifeless tissue, I give you a cultured, sophisticated man about town. In the film, Frankenstein's assistant's Fritz. Really? Fritz? That's the name they went with. Fritz steals the brain of a criminal to put into the monster. This perhaps explains why he is an incoherent, lumbering miscreant. There's no moment in the novel where Victor Frankenstein screams, It's alive! There's no lightning bolts to reanimate the creature in the book. And the good doctor specifically does not explain how he brought the creature to life for fear that others would replicate the success of his terrible mistakes. There's no moment in the novel where the monster drowns a little girl playing with flowers. In fact, it's the opposite. In the novel, the monster actually saves a little girl who's drowning, which is really nice. But later on in the novel, the creature murders all of Victor's family, so that's bad. Victor ultimately hunts down the monster, following it to the ends of the earth to seek revenge and destroy his own creation. The novel does not have a burning windmill or a fight sequence or Dr. Frankenstein living happily ever after. Instead, in the novel, Dr. Frankenstein dies on a ship. The original film in almost every way ignored what gave meaning to its source material. Sure, Universal was going for scary and not an examination of the unintended consequences of one's action in a destructive desire for unattainable knowledge through the creation of life. But by laying this foundation of a mad scientist, grunting creatures, neck bolts, angry mobs, the original film set in motion a framework for subsequent adaptations of the novel that embraced a less than accurate portrayal of the source material. Among these are... I was a teenage Frankenstein, Blackenstein, Frankenhooker, Alvin and the Chipmunks meet Frankenstein. Honestly, none of these films or any other piece of cinematic artistry truly captures the essence of Shelley's original work. For that matter, they didn't even seem to really try, save for one, the subject of this episode. The 1994 adaptation of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, starring Kenneth Branagh and Robert De Niro, arguably does the best job of following the book's narrative and themes more closely than any other attempt. On the heels of Francis Ford Coppola's 1992 adaptation of Bram Stoker's Dracula, it was decided that another faithful adaptation should be, nay, must be done. Coppola served as the producer on the proposed faithful interpretation of Mary Shelley's novel, and Coppola was going to direct the film himself as a companion piece to his previous film, Dracula, but instead opted to let Kenneth Branagh direct the film in which he would also be starring. It was reported that Coppola regretted turning over the directorial duties to Branagh after the two had some disagreements during filming. Uh-oh. Reportedly, after viewing a rough cut, Coppola wanted to edit the first half hour of the film, but Branagh objected, resulting in Coppola denouncing the film publicly. Double uh-oh. It was Frank Darabont who adapted the novel for the screenplay. In the same year of Frankenstein's release, Darabont would see the release of The Shawshank Redemption, a movie which Darabont both directed and also adapted from a Stephen King short story. 
Darabont would go on to adapt and direct film versions of Stephen King's The Green Mile and The Mist, among other films. But when it came to the final interpretation of his screenplay adaptation of Frankenstein, Darabont said, It was the best script I ever wrote and the worst movie I'd ever seen. Darabont went on to say that there's a weird doppelganger effect when I watch the movie. It's kind of the movie I wrote, but not at all like the movie I wrote. It has no patience for subtlety. It has no patience for the quiet moments. It has no patience, period. It is big and loud and blunt and rephrased by the director at every possible term. Kind of makes you wonder how he really felt. Speaking of the director, let's talk about the movie's star, Kenneth Branagh. Branagh was born in Belfast and trained at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art in London. Over his career, he has directed or starred in multiple adaptations of Shakespeare plays, including Much Ado About Nothing, Othello, Hamlet, Love's Labor's Lost, and As You Like It. In an interview with the New York Times, Branagh said of the film Frankenstein, It's a family tragedy, like Shakespeare. There's a lot of echoes of Hamlet in it, I think. Victor Frankenstein's the opposite side of the same coin as Hamlet. Instead of forming a philosophy of death and our journey toward it, he resists it. He says, let's stop them dying and see if we can do it better. He replaces Hamlet's intellectual pursuit with physical action, and still he isn't happy. And it makes sense that a talented director like Branagh would helm a faithful adaptation of a gothic horror novel that at its core has more in common with Henry V than it does Friday the 13th. Robert De Niro was cast to play The Creature. In the four years prior to the release of Frankenstein, De Niro had starred in or appeared in Goodfellas, Awakenings, Backdraft, Cape Fear, This Boy's Life, and A Bronx Tale. Damn, that's a lot of good movies. And it stands to reason, if you're going to produce a faithful epic interpretation of Shelley's novel, that you would need to cast an actor with a range and gravitas to be brutal at one moment and tender the next. De Niro's performance as the creature is more in line with Shelley's description than any other preceding version of the character. His version of the creature has skin that is stitched together with what almost appears to be barbed wire. He has absent eyes and his head is shaved, which he shields from onlookers as he struggles to come to terms with his own humanity and concepts of good and evil. Helena Bottom Carter was cast to play the female lead, Elizabeth, Victor's love interest and adopted sister. During the filming, Bottom Carter and Branna began an affair while Branna was still married to Emma Thompson. This was the first film directed by Kenneth Branagh not to feature Emma Thompson, so there may be some lessons learned there. Branagh and Bonham Carter were together for five years after the release of the film, but went their separate ways. In 2001, Bonham Carter began a relationship with the director Tim Burton while the two were working on Planet of the Apes. I kind of forgot that he directed that movie, and I totally forgot that she was in it. It is rumored that at one point Tim Burton was being considered to direct an adaptation of Frankenstein by Columbia Pictures, eyeing Arnold Schwarzenegger as the creature. I'm just going to let that sink in for a moment. The cast of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein was rounded out by Delta House Pledge Larry Kroger, a.k.a. Tom Hulse. Aidan Quinn, who had previously worked with De Niro in The Mission, plays the sea captain that finds Victor Frankenstein romping across the ice at the start of the film. And Monty Python's own John Cleese plays Professor Waldman, a mentor to Victor Frankenstein in his pursuits of reanimating a dead person. The movie opened on November 6, 1994, and it came in number two at the box office, right behind Stargate 
and just ahead of the Kevin Costner, Elijah Wood, post-Vietnam era tearjerker, The War. The second week for the film didn't fare too much better, as the Tom Cruise, Brad Pitt powerhouse showed up in the adaptation of Anne Rice's Interview with a Vampire, opened at number one, and the more terrifying Tim Allen vehicle, The Santa Claus, took over the number two slot. Frankenstein dropped to fifth place and continued a downward spiral after that. The movie underperformed domestically at the box office, but overall performed well enough globally to turn a profit. But the real question that sticks is, why didn't it do better? Favorite quotable critic of Pick 6 Movies, Roger Ebert, said of the film, The movie is bracketed with an unnecessary prologue and epilogue taken from the original novel during which an Arctic expedition encounters Frankenstein and his monster wandering far from home on the frozen wastes. Later in his review, Ebert notes that one sequence I did like involved the harnessing of lightning to give the creature life. It's inspired by the 1935 film Bride of Frankenstein. These two points seem to miss the intent of this movie, which is to make a film that is start to finish an adaptation of the source material and ignore the trappings of the previous interpretations. Objecting to the framing device of the novel and praising inaccurate holdovers from previous interpretations seems, well, wrong. I read once that knowledge is knowing that Frankenstein isn't the monster. Wisdom is knowing that Frankenstein is the monster. Mary Shelley's novel and this movie are complicated, to say the least. And perhaps the movie's lackluster performance is more a reflection of people wanting more lumbering grunts, neck bolts, green skin, and angry villagers, as opposed to a modern-day cinematic interpretation of a Romantic-era retelling of Greek mythology. Or maybe the movie just isn't any good. Well, there's only one way to answer that question. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, I proudly present to you Episode 2, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Frankenstein. Damn it. And welcome to Pick 6 Movies. Uh, my name is Chad Cooper. Along with me, as always, my lovely co-host, Mr. Bo Ransdell. Show good. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say the entire episode. Front to back. Good. It's the Phil Hartman Frankenstein, really. Or Frankenstein's I, I, monster. <laughs> let's, not fu- let's not fuck up right off the bat. As the intro set up, we're going to talk about Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, the most faithful interpretation of the source material as best as I could find. However, at the same time, it's an interesting interpretation. Me, 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 me. Sorry, I nodded off there. <laughs> I started thinking about this movie and uh, and fell right to sleep. Look, I'm a believer, Chad, that when you talk about Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley, her biography should come with a guitar solo. She is a radically awesome lady. Not only was she an early uh, feminist and a political radical, she... Fucked her first husband on the the grave of uh, her brother, I think, or sister. Mm-hmm. And that's fucking awesome. She single-handedly, not single-handedly, I mean, I guess you can make the argument that Percy Shelley and Lord Byron and, and, and that gang influenced the subject matter. But she created 
gothic horror for the most part with the novel Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus and single-handedly launched the career of Anne Rice who would not be born for decades with, with her kind of use of flowery language and the the ethos of the monster uh, you know or maybe the pathos of the monster which is more suited to Frankenstein's monster than Dracula in terms of the Anne Rice stuff both the novel Frankenstein and Mary Shelley herself are extremely cool and this movie is like if the Fonzie is cool this would be like when Richie dressed up like the Fonz <laughs> I can't argue with that <laughs> kids ask your ask your parents who Richie and the Fonz are well you know what let, let's kind of jump into it let's start to tease this one apart as we are want to do just sort of get into the the nuts and bolts no pun intended, um, <laughs> of, of this movie. So I want to start off with the, the title credits. The movie begins and it's totally black with what appears to be a very tiny, small, rectangular white space in the center of your screen or your, your viewing. I don't know. What would you call it? The your, viewing area, the, the window <laughs> to the soul of this film, just distant. We get this voiceover of a woman that is I'm guessing supposed to be Mary Shelley telling how this is going to be a story filled with horror and spooky, scary stuff. And as the voice speaks, our white rectangle grows in size until we see that it is actually a font treatment of the name Mary Shelley. Then boom, in flies the word Frankenstein. Right, like Friday 3D or something. Th that's what I was thinking. It was like, I fully expected beneath that for it to say in 3D. It looks like uh, Richard Donner's Superman. You know, of just like in a bum, 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 bum. Like, here we go. And it's very campy. Yeah. Just in a font treatment, which I found a bit surprising. I fully expected there to be more bbc america a nice scripted font something that really says please rsvp welcome to the movie you know what i mean we have a right. dress code leave your stovetop hat with the hatchet girl and settle in for a nice evening of cocktails canapes and philosophical introspection instead yeah it's very much like monsters this is the beginning of my problem with the film as a whole it starts right here with the credits with the credit the opening credits first of all i think the opening narration is dumb like why are you narrating this it reminds me of the, the framing of bride of frankenstein which is in theory mary shelley talking about the book frankenstein and it, so bride of frankenstein is sort of bookended by these scenes of elsa lancaster as mary shelley and it's like, well, okay, if you're going to do that, then just do that. Why have the ghost narration that don't have nothing to do with the rest of the movie or the end or anything? You know, it's fancy. You're getting ahead of yourself. That's two, three movies ahead. You're creating a time loop of in the future, in the past. Right, but what is the point of this scroll just to tell you, like, get ready, kids? It's like uh, the opening of The Fog where John Huston is like, you know, five minutes till midnight. Time for one more story. You get the voiceover, but then you get this bottom-up scroll that's going to set the stage to tell us that we are at the dawn of the 19th century. But really, we're at the end of the 18th century. Yes. Which is kind of like saying, 
I'm 29 and three quarters years old again. Just right. shut up. Right. I'm, guess what? I'm 480 months. And it's like, you know what? Go fuck yourself. And I also like that there was a lust for knowledge that had never been greater. By one dude in this movie. It's like. <laughs> well, two. Two dudes. Two, but, wait, yeah, no, right. Fair <laughs> enough. Hans Delbrook, which I will call him in this movie to pay off a joke that I have. Yeah, it, it's him and Kenneth Branagh in the film. And that's it. Everyone else is just like, we're not touching radical science. It flies in the face of the opening narration. Why even say all of this shit that A, isn't true? Or at least in, in terms of the scope of the novel or of the scope of the movie. And B, why are you wasting so much goddamn time? This movie is two hours and three minutes long. Ticka ticka. Let's wrap this fucker up. Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein put together are about 215. <laughs> so in our scroll, we get a description of Captain Robert Walton, an explorer, bow, And he is obsessed with reaching the North Pole. And it is he who encounters Dr. Frankenstein and will be the one to tell us the movie that we come to see. And it's sort of, again, it's, it's the odd marriage of the source material and the film. And, and I touched on this in the introduction, which I found to be a bit of a contradiction in Roger Ebert's both praise of and criticism to this film. But in the movie, we get this scroll. From In my opinion, it was like, hey, guys, this is based on the book, so we all got to do some reading. No illiterates in the crowd uh, tonight. <laughs> Let, let's do that litmus test to watch them make sure that entry into this stupid fucking movie is for the elite only of, of society. Subtitles, I didn't come here for no reading movies. I came here to see watching movies. <laughs> come on. <laughs> Also, the introduction of this character, first of all, it reminded me that uh, I should have just watched The Terror instead, which was the fantastic AMC series that, that aired this year. That is kind of about the same thing about the search for the, the North Pole, and it features a monster bear, which was pretty rad. Is Santa Claus in that? No, not Santa Claus, but Mercury Poisoning sure is, and it's awesome. We'll deal with that in the next episode, by the way. <laughs> yeah. But the problem with it is it is so obvious from the jump. You know, as soon as Aiden Quinn, by the way, what the fuck happened to Aiden Quinn? What's he doing these days? Sprint commercials? Where is he? I'm, I'm concerned. I'm legitimately worried about Aiden Quinn. At any rate, so Aiden Quinn is this, the obsessed explorer, Captain John North Pole wants to find this Northwest Passage or whatever the fuck it is. When he first meets Frankenstein, and Frankenstein is like, uh, I'm quite tired. Because Kenneth Branagh acts his ass off in this movie in every scene. You know, if acting is the, the art of seeming effortless, Kenneth Branagh is doing the opposite of that. Where every line he has feels like he rehearsed it in front of, like, the London theater. Uh, like, he's really uh, aiming for the cheap seats in this performance. Yeah, this movie is full of actors. Brilliant. Thank you. I swear to God, John Lovett should be in, in the corner of every scene. And at the end, <laughs> just go, acting, thank you. John Lithgow on the other side, just let it. That would be a more entertaining movie. How have they not been in a movie together? Just a movie that's just called Acting? Because the world is not fair. <laughs> Anyone who tells you different is selling something. 
as a wise man once said. <laughs> the problem with this scene for me is that it telegraphs the ending so clearly that the rest of the movie, you're just waiting for this ending to happen because Aiden Quinn is like, Hey, uh, I know you got, you said there's like some kind of monster out here or something, but we got to keep going. And Kenneth Branagh does this like swoon. He's like, I see you are infected by my madness too. And you're just like, Oh fuck. Is that what we got to put up with for this movie? I guess it is. Aiden Quinn is this sea captain, and he's got this fat little buddy that's his number two. <laughs> Shmi, and yes. they're Yeah, and they're they're on their way up to the North Pole, and they get stuck in the ice, and that's when they meet up with Dr. Frankenstein. When they meet up with him, Frankenstein just immediately says, like, give me all your men, give me all your guns, like, I need your help right now. And everyone in his crew is just like, yeah, fuck whatever he says. And then... Aiden Quinn's like, hey, back down, jackasses. We just met this guy like 10 seconds ago. And they're completely on board to do whatever, you know, Frankenstein says. Well, because the rest of his crew is like, hey, you keep getting us stuck in ice and we're eventually all going to freeze to death. So how about up your butt with a coconut? Let's turn this ship around and get the fuck out of here. And if this guy's telling us there's a monster because they're all trapped in the ice, you know, when the film begins. Uh, because they titanic their way right into an iceberg. Just outright telling Aiden Quinn, hey, if we keep going, we're going to mutiny. And you can pencil that in. Like, what what time is good for you? Because we're planning on about five minutes after you say we're going to keep going north. Is that good for you? <laughs> on this on this ship that crashes into the ice and gets stuck, they've got a like a pack of huskies, which I'm assuming they're going to use to you know, go the last mile to get wherever the hell they're going. And while the sea captain is talking to Frankenstein, the dogs break loose and they run off to follow this distant howling that we're hearing, you know, off in the snow or fog or whatever yeah. it is. Oh. And then and then we get to see each of these dogs just one by one taken out using some kind of like wax the car, paint the fence defensive moves. And it was during this moment that I noticed how badly edited this movie is. I'm confused as to what is going on, but I clearly know what the hell is happening. These dogs are jumping up and somebody is judo chopping them to their demise. All right. Hi, kiba These dogs to death. You know, not since John Carpenter's The Thing have, have so many huskies been killed in a single scene. It's real dumb. Because all these dudes just stand around, hear all the dogs get killed, and then look at each other like, well, who's going next, I guess? I mean, does somebody else want to go after the dogs? Frankenstein's like, no, whatever you do, you mustn't go after him. Well, but then right after that, we get this Evil Dead tracking shot that's zooming in. And then all, all of the crew and the captain and Frankenstein, they're all scared. And they, they run back, you know, to the ship that's frozen in the ice. And then we get the captain and Frankenstein back in the captain's quarters. And thus our story begins. Yeah, we get a, a real 20 years earlier. Frankenstein is telling him the, the woeful tale of the search for forbidden knowledge which is kind of not the point of frankenstein in terms of the novel i would argue yeah so we go back to vienna 20 years earlier and it's victor as a young kid where he's introduced to 
Helena Bonham Carter, who is not the actress in the scene, but her character, Elizabeth, <laughs> because we got to recycle that name for this movie. Every classic horror film has to have an Elizabeth in it. They're like, hey, her parents died of, you know, fucking consumption or whatnot. And we felt bad, so we're going to drag her in here and you're going to treat her like a sister. Is that cool, Victor? And he's like, yeah, that's fine. A sister. That's cool. Is that your impression of an eight-year-old? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know a lot of kids. It sounds like the guy who hands out the shoes at the bowling alley. Yeah, that's right. What is that a size 12? You got about a size 12 there? That's pretty good. Sounds like a dude who's constantly holding in some really good weed. But for some reason, he hasn't gotten high in years. Or an orgasm. He's just constantly edging. (laughs) Do you find it troublesome? Like, in this movie, it says, you know, that it's 1773, and we are in Geneva, Switzerland. But everyone in this movie either has a British accent, an American accent, or an American accent doing a British accent. No one has a Swiss accent. I'm fine with it. It's sort of like most of the movies of of a certain era anytime there were you know evil germans in a movie uh they always had british accents because we're dumb americans it's like yeah that sounds foreign that ain't how we talk over here so he must be german young victor as we meet him again as you noted he is a cigarette smoking uh bowling shoe dispensing (laughs) eight-year-old boy And he's in this giant mansion dancing around with his mom. And in the house, they have a housemaid who's there with her eight-year-old daughter, Justine. Remember her name. She's important later. Mm. And Justine's mom is playing the harpsichord while Victor and his mother are dancing around. But as a child, did you ever dance around with your mom? I think we've established that. Uh, there was no physical contact between me and my parents at any point that was frowned upon in our household. If there was, it involved the back of a hand. Right. Is that why I oughta, let me, I'll give you one across the choppers, um, was more of the, the household. But, but when I went to visit other normal families, even there, no, nobody danced together because if you (laughs) did, first of all, school would be, you would have to move. You couldn't go to school the next day if you got caught dancing with your parents. You would have to run away to a different <laughs> educational system because everyone would be can like, you imagine, could you imagine kids kids saying, hey, I, I was over at Jerry's house. He was dancing around with his mom. Like, like, what? Jerry's mom, was she wearing anything? No, and she was telling him how handsome he was and, and how funny and charming. And they were just dancing around. Let's beat him up later. <laughs> then she sent him up to the attic with his sister, where apparently they live. <laughs> Wait a minute. He doesn't have a sister. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> I think we've already made a better movie. So after El- Elisabetta comes in, Justine and her mom are ceremoniously just kicked out of the room. Yeah, get the fuck out of here. We got real family <laughs> in the room now. And don't look her in the eye on your way out. <laughs> That's right. This new street urchin, she's more important than you two because we don't pay her to live here. Unlike you two ungrateful house servants. I've got a question about this. When they uh-huh. take her in, does her name become Elizabeth uh, uh, von Frankenstein? Because if so, that makes the later actions of this film even creepier than they already are. I wholly agree. I didn't think about that. Like, please join us for the wedding of 
Frankenstein and Frankenstein. <laughs> right. The best man is just John Houston from Chinatown. I don't think of the best man is Victor Frankenstein. Like he has a mirror set up like Stuart Smalley looking at himself. You're good enough. You're incestuous enough. And doggone it. Your weird sister loves you. <laughs> right. Not only does Elizabeth come to uh, live with the Frankensteins, but we cut away, you know, like years later. And we have, I don't know how long it's been. In theory, Victor is about to go off to college, you know, and he's they're throwing one last kegger before he goes. His mom comes in just to tell him, like, hey, nerdlinger, you need to stop studying so much. And he's like, but, you know, mother, it's important that I strive and find knowledge. And I don't know why I'm doing a shitty Bill Shatner. Yeah, because if William Shatner had had done had performed this role, the acting would not have been substantively different. No, not at all. I want to point out you're leaving out an important detail. His mother comes in to say, "Hey, egghead, have more fun and less book learning." But she's also pregnant, and when she walks in, and she's kind of doing the the pregnant thing again, listeners. Everyone in this movie is acting. And <laughs> right. so she's she's leaning back at about a 30-degree angle, supporting her belly that weighs probably about 16 ounces of like to let you know it's it's really heavy because a child is in my womb. And when I saw her pregnant, my first thought was, did Victor fuck his mom? He's already got the eyes for his adoptive sister. Yeah, the way they were dancing around, that's definitely not out of the question. And not that it was sexy dancing. It was just like, you're way too into your kid. Oh, guilty feet have no rhythm indeed, Chad. We get to the ballroom, and Victor and his mom, who's way into him, and his dad, I guess, who's not. And then now their grown, adopted, quote, sister are dancing around, and there's more harpsichord music and a lot of dandy fop aristocracy style square dancing, and everyone's all duded up in wigs and BBC America accoutrements. And here's the thing this type of behavior, is that what passed for entertainment? Because in my opinion, if I had a choice between dancing around with my mom and dad in lederhosen and leggings and in frilly garments or a crippling opium and or morphine addiction, I know which path I'm headed down. Well, nobody knew shit. Uh, you, <laughs> that's your excuse. Yeah. <laughs> nobody knew shit. Yeah. I mean, this is primitive people. Like for all the, the, the talk in this movie about like science and whatnot, they're also incredibly stupid for, for being, you know, pre 1800s folk. Like we're not a hundred years away from people being burned for witchcraft. Because the choice isn't crippling opium addictions, although, you know, that's right around the corner. Uh, I don't think those trade routes were, were quite uh, established yet. Maybe not. Uh, I don't know. But you definitely had throwing balls and dancing with, with the family. You had taverns where you could throw some different kind of balls, if you know what I mean. Then that was it. Or you set out to see to see what else was out there and got scurvy. And that, to me, was the choice. You know, that's what I would try to do is like, I'm going to get on a boat and see what the fuck else is out there because this place is boring. 
Justine, the housemaid daughter, she's basically on lurch duty and she's harpsichording it up. And then uh, Victor uh, Frankenstein, he says like, hey, why don't you and I dance? And Justine's mom, she's not happy. She kind of gives it the stink eye. But before Victor and Justine can dance, whoop, Victor's mom goes into labor. So she kind of cock blocks. Is that pussy uh, blocks? I don't know. Yeah. What, whatever kind of like fuck blocks these two from maybe getting together by having a baby. The math that I did on this isn't that the mother is cock blocking at this point. It's the child, the as yet unborn mm-hmm. child that's actually cock blocking. Because I don't think the mother was like, you know, let's push this baby on out. You think his, his unborn little brother was like, I'm going to baby cock block this. Fuck you, Victor. <laughs> I'll show you for having a ball. I don't know why she was giving birth to Mickey Mouse. We cut to, to moms and she's in a leather reading chair by my account. And um, her husband, the dad, is basically playing catcher. Justine and Justine's mom are tag teaming midwife uh, duties. And blood is everywhere. It's all over everyone. And not since the film Rocky, uh, when he said, you know, cut my eye, Mick. Have I winced as much as I did when in this movie, Pregnant Moms asks her husband to, quote, cut me, save the baby. Which he does. So moms is out of the picture. We get the newborn brother, Mickey brother. That's kind of where we are in the film. So far, so good. Very significantly, as this is all going down, Victor sees lightning strike a tree outside. The foreboding image of lightning and uh, electricity and its destructive and chaotic power. Acting! And after the lightning strikes the tree, Victor runs outside and begins to whittle the tree down into a baseball bat, uh-huh. which he uses to become a major league baseball player and hit a home run yeah. in a championship game. Glenn Close shoots him. That's not Glenn Close. It's uh, uh, Barbara Hershey shoots him. Oh, that's right. I See, that's the point I turned the movie off. I've seen all I need to see of the natural at the point he gets shot. <laughs> It gets good after that. It's fine. That's the adult stuff. I want to see him like taking his swings in the field uh, and whatnot and carving Wonder Boy and all that stuff. And as soon as somebody shows up and is like, hey, we had sex, see? I got to shoot you, see? Then I'm like, eh, I'm done. But that's the part where they, they deal with the adult stuff. Yeah. And I've, you need to watch that. I've, I think we've established I've never grown up. <laughs> I'm not about to start now, and uh, certainly not with the natural. Victor's sees lightning strike a tree. And you know what? Here's the thing. You point out that, like, oh, lightning is going to play an important part of this movie. If you're taking notes on this, it does not at all. <laughs> it, it should, but it doesn't. It should, but it doesn't. There are three scenes where lightning is important. This one, the next one, and the creation scene. And that's it. It's, you know what? I'm going to bite my tongue on how much I didn't like this movie. We hear this moan scream from upstairs because everyone in this movie is trying to win a Tony Award. And then uh, Victor's dad comes slowly walking down this gigantic staircase that looks like it's out of like a Dr. Seuss book. And there's like 30, at least 30 steps. There's no handrail. It is a safety hazard. <laughs> yes, and Vic- as we'll learn Victor- at the end of the movie. Victor's dad comes up the stairs and he's only wearing pants and he's covered in blood. So he was clearly masturbating. Yes. 
don't think and been there done that. And Victor says, How is she, idiot? Yeah. And then pops is she it. okay. <laughs> it's like Leslie You're- Nielsen telling the crowd, There's nothing to see here as fireworks are going off behind him and naked gun. It's that level of, of contradictory information being given. Your father slowly lumbers down this never-ending staircase covered in blood after he, who is also a physician, has been the one to help birth your unborn sibling, covered head to toe in blood. How is she? And Pop says, I did everything I could. And the music swells. I I have to stop you here because this is how my my childhood has ruined me. And and partially you're to blame for this. Because as soon as I hear... I did everything I could. The next line is, but she died before I could see her. <laughs> it's a funny joke. It's, you know, God bless Dave Foley. <laughs> <laughs> but at, like, as soon as he said it, that was the next line. I was like, shit, the kids in the hall have kind of ruined melodrama for me in this respect. <laughs> Medical melodrama will never work for me again. Victor runs in and as soon as he goes in, he sees his mom and she's dead and she's laid up in this chair. And then he bites his knuckle as though he is Lenny and or Squiggy. <laughs> yeah, it's real. Hello, Shoyle. Yeah, it's so stupid <laughs> to put an exclamation point on how dumb this is and how dumb the motivation of Victor Frankenstein himself is in this movie. Because after this, it's like three years later, we, we have this scene with victor at the grave of the mother and is like no one ever has to die and you're like what the fuck are you talking about of course they do how are you gonna make room for everybody if you just keep having babies and no one ever dies you know it's that question of like hey if if someone gave you a penny and then gave you twice that the next day and then twice that again the day after that like at the end of 30 days you'd be a millionaire it's like that with babies and people everywhere you gotta have people dying otherwise this all of this shit breaks down not that we're doing great as it is but it gets worse and that's the thing that bothers me most about this movie is that the motivation of frankenstein is entirely selfish it's not i want to save humanity it's i don't want my mommy to die It feels like such a petulant motivation for the main character instead of someone who is obsessed with the idea of knowledge. It's just, I don't want my mommy to die. I don't want my girlfriend to die. Fuck you, Victor Frankenstein, in this movie. I'm going to sort of pause things for a moment. I don't think I mentioned this in my introduction because I forgot. Is that in the original adaptation of this, his name is Henry Frankenstein, mm-hmm. but in the novel in this movie, it's Victor Frankenstein, but in the novel in this movie, he has a friend who's named Henry, but his name is Victor. But in the original movie, his name is Henry, and he has a friend whose name's Victor, which means whoever wrote the screenplay for the original movie just didn't give a fuck about who was named what or where. They were just sort of secondhand telling this story from someone who told it to them, like, yeah, yeah, what was his name? Mm, okay. Okay. All right. Yeah. All right. I, I got it. I got it. I got it. Yeah. Monster. Good. Right. Okay. No, I'm good. I'm good. He read the the source material as fast as you would if there were those little cartoons all drawn on every page that was like a ball bouncing or something, and you just flip through it to animate it. It's that level of detail that he was going for in the original Frankenstein. But again, I would argue 
that the original Frankenstein with Colin Clive and all that is and Boris Karloff understands the source material better than this movie in terms of the motivation of Frankenstein. Frankenstein is a mad scientist. He is a character driven by the idea that God himself should not possess the power of life and death, that humanity is now ready to embrace that, that humankind should possess the power. It should not be some metaphysical thing that it should, science can be applied to the very nature of existence. And in so doing, you can create life. I agree with what you're saying in regard to the motivations of Dr. Victor Henry Frankenstein. However, I think that this movie does, without a doubt, a much better job of interpreting the character of the creature compared to any other interpretation that I've ever seen before. Yes, I I agree with you, but I I still think that Carlos' performance still has that same level of pathos. He's not as eloquent, certainly, but there is still that notion of the innocent turned monster. I think that removing the intellectual, self-aware, curious nature of the creature that exists in the novel and exists in this movie to a great extent is neutered in the original when you replace it with, oh, oh, ah. I can't explain why they went down that path. It may have just been they didn't understand the source material or they didn't want to embrace the source material as much. But we'll get into this a little bit later, but I really enjoy parts of this movie that deal with the subject matter of Mary Shelley's novel in ways that I had not seen before. Yeah, although I I would say Bride in particular, the monster isn't quite as unintelligible. It's not like he's conversational at any point in the movie, but there's more of a sense of the idea of like, hey, I, I am this hideous creation. All I want is someone that is like me so that I, I can satisfy this loneliness, this aching existence of being the only one of my kind. And then realizing, oh, fuck, no matter what I do, I'm still just going to be this hideous monster. We'll tap into that a couple episodes down the road. I feel like to your point, it's almost like somebody who was around during the filming of Bride of Frankenstein picked up the novel and was like, hey, did any of you motherfuckers read this book? (laughs) Right. There's a lot of good shit in here. Uh Like, no, we didn't read it. Were there any miniature doll people in it? No? Then how about you go fuck yourself, because Bride of Frankenstein has that in spades. <laughs> I'm James Whale, and I like doll people. Put in a giant spider, and then uh, everything comes together. Again, we'll talk about it in a later episode, but the original Bride of Frankenstein is one of the weirdest fucking movies ever put to film. And everyone knows that we belong dead, and uh, that kind of stuff. But along the way, it is James Whale's... A, his coming out party to the world of just like, I'm fabulous. And also, there are miniature doll people on this scientist's desk for no reason. And he's just like, look what I do. I made a miniature king. And you're like, what? (laughs) (laughs) Why why on earth did you do that? How on earth did you do that? This one's a ballerina. It's like a real Venture Brothers kind of move. It's really bizarre. But anyway... That's not this movie. We cut to Victor, and he's in his lab where he's discussing 
I don't know, like thermodynamics and how energy changes form. And it's here we get to see this sort of playful banter of Victor and his sister girlfriend. And <laughs> she picks up this tube that Victor says, oh, that's for spraying down the electric eels. Which the first time I saw this, I was like, what the fuck? Electric eels are native to South America. I have no idea how he would get them to his home in Sweden, why he would have them. Where he got them, it doesn't make any sense that this character would be able to accomplish this feat. It, it boggles my mind completely because there's no reason he would have these except for later when he needs them to bring a, a human being back to life. Yeah, you know, he was greasing the palms uh, of someone down at the dock like, hey, what you got in here? Oh, uh, we got these eels. What for? I don't know. We just they were weird. We threw him in a barrel and brought him with us. I want him. Take take me to my lab. This isn't the one plot point I'm going to get hum, hung up on as it relates to scientific accuracy in the movie. It was just kind of the first one that I stumbled over. So Elisabetta and Victor, they playfully run around his laboratory. And then we cut to the Swiss Alps where Victor and Elisabetta and Justine the maid who secretly loves Victor and Victor's now three-year-old brother. They're running across again, what is clearly the same location from the sound of music where Julie Andrews sings the title song, looking up into this azure sky of deepest summer, the grass is green. There are distant mountains covered in fallen snow. And what do we see? A lonely cloud quickly moving along that is filled with electricity. And Elizabeth suggests, we should run and hide under a tree, which one is a stupid idea. But number two, there are literally no trees anywhere to be found on this mountaintop. If you were in Antarctica and someone said, we should all build sandcastles. What are you talking about? This doesn't make any sense at all, stupid. So instead, Victor says, hey, guys, I've got a better idea than your stupid idea, but only by a little bit. He opens up his picnic basket and he fashions an antenna lightning rod into the ground. And then these three adults and this one three-year-old child lay on the ground and they hold hands around this lightning rod. I didn't think there was a worse idea when I heard Elizabeth say they should hide under a tree, but here it is. Because... Unless the four of them just suddenly decided to put on suits of armor and stand on each other's shoulders, could there be a dumber plan of attack when it comes to lightning being in the area? I feel like we needed a line here where Victor said something like, no, no, don't worry, I've done this before. Because otherwise, this is a big fucking experiment he's conducting with innocent people. I'm like, hey, I'm going to call the lightning down to us, and I'm pretty sure this is all going to work out. Well, well, Victor, because he is, you know, a scientician, he counts down three, two, one, and then lightning strikes. And as a byproduct, it fills this foursome of people with blue electrical currents, the likes of which is the same types of electricity that makes that time-traveling phone booth at the Circle K run. And <laughs> Yeah, it's very similar. I have a question. How much would you have enjoyed watching this scene with Neil deGrasse Tyson? Oh, I, I mean, that's kind of true of most movies. But yes, this in particular of just him being <laughs> like, 
Nope. And then explaining how dumb it is. And throughout the film, up to and including the creation scene, yes, if I'd had him on Skype or something, like I could glance over periodically and have him go, that's bullshit. That would be great. But then again, I don't need him for that because even in my own stupid brain, I'm seeing this and I'm thinking, that's bullshit. Could you only imagine how much he would want to jump out of his skin? It's not just Snope. It's like, this is holy. No, no, this is not. No! 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 Right. Everything about this is wrong. And I'm not even talking about the reanimation of corpses. Just basic science. No! You're getting everything wrong. Yeah, but again, this is a movie far more concerned with the the stupid-ass love story at the center of it than the actual story of Frankenstein. Yes, it totally gets any part of the science uh, incorrect. In fairness, you know, the science of Frankenstein is pretty sketchy because it turns out you can't bring dead tissue back to life, at least not without the right ingredients. At the end of the day, it kind of doesn't matter, I guess, but also at least give it a shot. But this is another one of those scenes where it's like, hey, the electrical stuff is important. You know? No, it's not. But it's not. <laughs> it's not, but this scene would lead you to believe that it is. If you watch this whole movie and they lay on the ground and lightning strikes, and then like when they get up, they're all kind of like, you know, tingly, like they're Johnny Five or something, and they've just come to life. And Victor asks Elizabeth, like, how does you feel how do you feel? And she says, Alive, and they touch fingers and it zaps. You think electricity is gonna be important? The level of importance of electricity in this film would be as though Victor brings his creation alive by sticking his finger up its asshole and goosing him back to consciousness. All right. To play a little fan fiction with this movie, as as we enjoy doing on occasion, what if it had been like his brother, Willie, had been, I don't know, stung by bees or some bullshit, drowned, whatever, and he used his interest in electri- electricity to do something that is real science, i.e. he uses an electrical charge to restart the heart of a relative who has been injured or is going to die or whatever. And then it's like, oh, he understands. He's making the connection between electricity and reanimating a dead corpse. And also, hey, that's a real thing. If you got a, a bum ticker... That's actually what they do to restart it in some cases. I like the idea of him sticking his finger up the corpse's butt and then he's like, Ooh, oh my gosh, I brought him to life. That's because you haven't seen Goosenstein, <laughs> which is a much better film on paper than it is, uh, it turns out in practice. Unfortunately, I mean, I watched the whole thing. We cut to a big fancy dinner party and there's a giant ballroom filled with white people in white clothes doing a choreographed fancy white people dance. And Victor is being way too handsy with Elizabeth. Again, it's his sister, it's his sister girlfriend. They kiss at one point during the dancing. And then Victor's dad gets up and he makes a speech congratulating his son for heading off to medical school and everyone's happy and they applaud. And then Victor's dad immediately brings down the room and starts yapping about his dead wife and how sad it is that she's not there to see the moment and everyone gets all sad. And then Pops gives Victor this present from the dead mom and it's a journal, quote, to be filled with the deeds of a noble life. Man, it's so funny that my notes are also his dad brings the room down. 
Uh, but that's only what happens. It's just like everybody's having a good time, and he's just like, I don't know if I've mentioned my dead wife. I promised myself I wouldn't get off the clamp. Right. Victor and Elizabeth are like, geez, is he going to bring this up again? Like, dad's been a real bummer since mom died, right? Here's what we need to do. They should have made this film with John Lovitz. It should have also included John Lithgow. We bring in Mike Myers in at least three different roles. One male, two female. Captain Kirk himself. Yeah. uh, William Shatner. The Shat. (laughs) Is there anyone else who could really pump this thing up when it comes to overacting? In all of these scenes. You throw in a little Jim Carrey as the, the creature. Let him rubber <sighs> face through through that. I think that would be fucking... What we are creating is the movie that would not be good by any stretch. But it would be imminently more watchable. Because every step of the way, somebody would be doing something so hammy. That it would at least distract you from how dumb everything else was. I would bring in Sherry O'Terry. I, and Rachel Dratch as Ian Holmes' character in this. Debbie Downer. Get all of the also-rans from our SNL season. Chris Kattan, put him in there. Chris Kattan would, may, would be a good replacement for Amadeus in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> Spoilers, listeners. Uh, Amadeus shows up in this movie here in a minute. Right. You could recast all of this with uh, SNL alumni and or guest hosts, and it would be certainly a more entertaining movie it would be it would be stupid but i would argue that no more stupid than it is now it's just that this one is stupid and overwrought instead of is stupid and at least people having fun with the material or trying to so elizabeth and victor go outside where victor asks his sister girlfriend how do brothers and sisters say goodbye Then they start kissing, open mouth with tongue. Right. And then he asks her, are you my sister? And she responds, sister, friend, lover. Lover. He drops to one knee and asks, wife? And I'm not sure if this scene would be better or worse if it happened outside of a double-wide trailer with a really thick southern accent. (laughs) Like Cletus the Slack John Yogel and... Maylene. If if it was him and he was just like, are you my sister? You know, and she's like, sister, friend, lover, wife? I, I wasn't thinking uh, Trailer Park. I was thinking Faye Dunaway from Chinatown just smacking herself and like, your sister, your lover, your sister, your lover. Because the, the premise of this scene is that he's never broached this subject before. So it's really him firing one across the bow in terms of, I wonder how this is going to go down with her. So the escalation of like, hey, I know that, you know, we dance together and and sometimes things feel a little, you know, a little weird. And you're not really blood, even though we were raised together as brother and sister. I'm just wondering, would you like a little... You know, a little, and she's like, yeah, I think that sounds cool. And he immediately proposes. And maybe that's just how it was done at the time. But that seems like a radical overleap in terms of my read of this situation could go horribly, horribly wrong now. Yeah, the only movie that really handled this with the level of delicate introspection, to my knowledge, is 
the original The Brady Bunch movie. Sure. With Greg uh, and Marsha wanting to fuck each other. <laughs> Actually, yeah. I don't say that jokingly. That was really a funny movie where they dealt with this subject matter. When you watch it here, it's it's really gross. And I both was making a joke about the Southern accent, but not really. Because if you did this with a bunch of hillbillies, it would just be like, this is gross. It would contextually make sense. You know, like at that point, you would be like, oh, okay, we're doing a play on the incestuous stereotype of Southern people, ignorant people who don't know any better. And they're just wanting to fuck somebody that happens to be their cousin, sister, mom, brother, whatever it is. But in this case, they're part of the aristocracy and it's like, well, they should know better because they're smart, but clearly they don't because they're stupid. I just need one line where instead of going, you know, through the process of sister, lover, wife, like all of that stuff, instead of doing that, if There had just been one moment where one of them had said, I know this is crazy, but I've never looked at you as a sibling. I've always looked at you, even though we were raised as siblings, I've always looked at you as a friend or something. Just something. And I would have been better with it all because the rest of the movie, I'm like... He's trying to get in his sister's pants. And why isn't that what this movie is called? Like Victor Frankenstein, sister fucker. Frankenstein, freaky Stein. You know, Justine's hanging out in the potted plants. Like, I'm not your sister and I'll fuck you, but you're the help. That's gross. I'm not going to fuck the maid's daughter. Sister, come over here and bend over. I will plant my seed in my sister, not your syphilitic vagina. Justine, you probably douche with mop water. If at all. Uh, Oh, stinky Justine. Elizabeth says she'll marry him, but she's not going to go off with him while he does his medical training. I noted here, I think that, that Helena Bottom Carter is a lovely woman that always looks like she's just starting to come down with the flu. Or has just put her hands... On one of those, like, electrical spheres that makes your hair stand up, you know? You're, you're right. It looks like somebody grabbed her out of her trailer and just shoved her onto the set before anyone really had time to fix her just quite right. Like, she's still mostly there, but... And it's weird seeing her as young uh, Helena Bonham Carter, because when I think of her these days, I think of her as a chimpanzee. No, I think... <laughs> did you forget she was in that movie no i I did i don't forget anything about planet of the apes that thing is burned into my brain (laughs) speaking of a head scratcher of a movie holy shit i don't know if we'll ever do that one ourselves but good lord that's a terrible movie it's gonna show up eventually at some point right like as soon as we do the don't make a monkey out of me season or whatever where it's that and all the any which way but loose movies. <laughs> we just do a run of BJ and the Bear. The the thing that struck me in, in this moment as uh, Victor goes off to college. There's a scene when he arrives in, you know, where is it? Is it Vienna that he goes to school or wherever? He goes to school in Vienna because they only let 42-year-old men into college. <laughs> right. They're like, you're. we're looking for non-traditional students here in Vienna. <laughs> The thing that really kind of cracked me up at this moment when he arrives in Vienna is being shown his eventual laboratory. And the guy renting the the space to him is like, hey, we've got this attic space for rent, which implies to me that he has neighbors downstairs. Oh, we'll get to that. <laughs> I've got I've got thoughts on that. Hold that thought, please. All right. So Victor Victor runs off to Germany to go to medical school. And as you point out, he rents uh, the attic in this three-story walk-up, 
which that's got to suck. And Victor shows up late to what I'm guessing is like a lecture by one of his professors at this medical school. And it's taking place (laughs) in this tiered circular lecture hall. I think it's more of like an observation room, you know, for people maybe to watch surgery or something like that. There's a lot of knowledge through power of with, with great power comes great responsibility. And this teacher's down there saying like, you guys are the the future and and we're going to teach you well and let you lead the way. And then Victor from, you know, way up in the rafters, he just pipes up and starts spouting off these philosophical approaches about well, what about this guy what about that guy and then the professor down below is like who are you and he's like i'm victor frankenstein he's like oh yeah another swiss which is clearly evident that this guy you know has a thing against other people from from other countries especially when they have british accents and then hiding in the shadows here is professor waldman who is played by john cleese in this movie john cleese is not funny in this movie at all And he is perfectly fine in this role. It just struck me as very curious casting. John Cleese is one of the funniest men to have ever walked planet Earth. His casting in this role doesn't bring anything to the role other than like big fake chompers because he's got these like dentures or whatever else. And it looks like he's from the mask. I found it curious that John Cleese was put in this role where he doesn't really bring anything to it. Or am I being an asshole? You have an expectation of John Cleese. I and mean, maybe that's wrong, but you're right. It's just a waste of the talent. Like you see this and realize this isn't that far away from his performance in a fish called Wanda, which is one of the funniest performances ever committed to film. And in this movie, he has Lan Hen- Henriksen pumpkin head teeth. And it is this kind of grouchy professor that has like three scenes. And even if you just wanted to cast John Cleese against type and give him something to do, he doesn't really have that much to do in this movie other than be the Hans Delbruck of the film. He just doesn't seem to bring anything to the role. I think about other casting against types. I thought about, you know, Robin Williams in Goodwill Hunting. Or other roles where you take a known comedic actor, put them into a role that casts them against type. I thought a little bit about even Rodney Dangerfield in Natural Born Killers. Sure. Where it's, it's surprising, but you're like, wow, he's doing something that is different than I've seen before in this. It's like, is that John Cleese? Yeah. Oh, okay. It seemed like a missed opportunity. Right. Even to let him be funny a little bit, like let him be wry or clever or a turn of a phrase where you're just like, yeah, that's the John Cleese I I know and love. And then, you know, when he ceremoniously gets killed in a couple of minutes, we'll, we'll be sad for having known him. But that's kind of the problem with all of this is that he is... Even, like we said, if you were going to play him against type and give him something to do to make this character memorable, because uh, aside from him like grabbing Victor Frankenstein and throwing him against a wall and like, why don't you say those things? It's a role that anyone could have done. To your point, John Cleese doesn't do anything to make it exceptional because the role itself is not all that exceptional. There's not that much to do with it. Victor leaves the classroom after getting dressed down by his professor, and he's followed by Henry. Played by Amadeus. Yeah, or played by Amadeus. Henry approaches Victor on the street, and they strike up a friendship. We are then introduced very briefly to a character named Schiller, who's played by Hugh Bonneville, or as I call him, the dad from Paddington. 
and Paddington 2. He's also Robert Crawley on Downton Abbey. I only bring this up because he is essentially the high school jock in this movie for about two seconds, and he purposefully crashes into Victor and Henry, and he says, why don't you watch where I'm going? And again, I bring this up because every person in this movie looks like they're 30 to 40 years old. I think Branagh was like 35 when he made it. We're expected to kind of look at this movie as maybe, at least at this point, a world of jocks versus nerds. There's going to be some sexy shenanigans later as Henry uh, and, and Victor, like, gas the jocks and put them all in lipstick and wigs or something maybe they're gonna go in and uh carve some scrimshaw of one of the sorority girls and then cover it up with whip topping and sell it for a few bucks at the carnival (laughs) ah scrimshaw (laughs) (laughs) i totally forgot about this until you brought it back up because i didn't make a note of it it was just like oh yeah that's a thing that happens once in this movie and is never mentioned again. It's so stupid. The whole thing is like the fact that we get the introduction of Amadeus and, uh, you know, as Henry Cavill, AKA Superman or whatever, his character also goes nowhere in this film. Like this character is literally dropped at the end of the movie on a staircase. And that is it. That is the last time you see him is him just whimpering like a child. It's just put together all wrong. Everything about this, like if the analogy we're using is of the Frankenstein's monster itself, this one wouldn't be Robert De Niro. It would be like Charles Fleischer. (laughs) Eddie, please. Please. Yeah, I, I can't even do that. I don't know why I'm trying. So we do get a moment where Amadeus and Victor are in John Cleese's joint. And basically Victor is saying, let me help you. I know that you're tapping into all this uh, forbidden knowledge. I want to help you. I believe that whatever it is that you're doing, I, I can make your research go faster and we can actually solve the mysteries of life and, and death. And John Cleese is like, no, fuck that. It is absolutely wrong and he's like how close did you get and john clues has this moment where he where he says too close and you're like well that sounds interesting john clues says no what i'm doing now is i am doing work that is meant only to help people never to harm and and certainly not to create life from uh, you know whole cloth or anything at a certain point he takes him back to his lab and he's got a monkey paw they go back to his lab and Waldman introduces the concept of Chinese medicine and acupuncture to Victor's worldview, along with the idea of electricity being the key to life. And I really enjoyed this as sort of pulling together Eastern and Western ideas, especially not having a comprehensive, true scientific understanding of how all of this blends together. To me, that seemed like an interesting idea of how you could introduce new concepts and begin to explore that. So I I really found that to be intriguing. Again, has nothing to do with the novel, but it it, it was nonetheless. Again, but the next scene reveals a chimpanzee arm that's all rigged up with wires and electrodes and doodads and shit. And then Henry, again, the friend, goes over and he touches the uh, the hand of the monkey and it kind of malfunctions and grabs Henry's hand with just 
brute force. And then Waldman, he can't stop it from crushing Henry's hand. And Victor goes over and he, you know, zaps it up with some jumper cables or something. And it makes the monkey's arm let go. At this point, Henry is like, oh my gosh, he's rubbing his arm. And then he kind of gives it a knowing glance as he walks away, which to me felt like 10 minutes alone with that thing. And my love, you and I might be a little more friendly. Oh yeah, it was going on his dick for sure. That's... Where, where in fact, as I said. watched it, in my notes, it says, is this the first pocket pussy? I don't know how pocket it is. Man. That's a pretty big arm. I, I don't know that you would get away with it for long. It's like, hey, man, what's with the monkey arm jutting out of your pants? What's up with the monkey arm strapped to your erection? <laughs> Not much. I don't know how you, A, hide that, and, and B, on, at a certain point, why on earth would you? You know, like you're, you need to sell that product. There, there are tickets. Like, I'm not only the owner of monkey arms for men, I'm also a client. So the next scene, Waldman and Victor are at the, the 19th century equivalent of a free clinic. And they're giving out vaccines to people. And this one-legged beggar guy comes up to Waldman. And he just basically refuses the vaccine so much that he stabs and kills Waldman, our mentor in the movie. And it's Robert De Niro. What? Oh, yeah. I know. (laughs) Oh, okay. I was like, man, surely I'm not the only one who noticed this because it is very clearly like him being all Robert De Niro. And Bobby D, as uh, his friends know him, is an anti-vaxxer who uh, shows up for the plague vaccine and it's just like, you're not going to poke me. You're not. Then, like you said, he, he ends up stabbing poor John Cleese because he doesn't want to get vaccinated and is also probably uh, a Nazi. I mean, who knows? He's a bad guy is what I'm getting. He's bad dude. He's bad dude. So what do they do with bad dudes? They hang him from the neck until he is dead. And the crowd goes crazy with joy because they love seeing one-legged you know, anti-vaxxers hang in front of them because they know what's good for society. So then Victor proceeds to raid Waldman's lab and he starts reading his notes. So much for obeying a dead man's wishes. Victor then goes and cuts down Bobby D's body, which is still hanging off of the rope hours later in the day, which I'm not sure how long you let a body hang until the authorities take it down. And then more importantly, what do you think the authorities thought when they showed up? Like, Hey, that body's gone. Yeah, it is. Well, shit. <laughs> Makes our jobs easier, right? Right. Yeah. If it's your job to take it down, you see that body missing and you're like, guess I'm taking a long breakfast, right? If it's my job to go and cut down the hanged corpse and then I show up and it's not there, my first thought is that corpse is being violated by perverts right now. Well, we've established that there's not that much to do on the social calendar Maybe somebody's dancing around with it. <laughs> right. You're my little princess, you all. <laughs> We've got our own ball. So our next scene, we have Elizabeth, and she's mouthing off to Justine, the daughter of the handmaid. And then she's mouthing off that Victor has stopped writing to her, and she is worried that he's found someone new, you know, maybe another sister that he could potentially want to have sex with. 
And then we, we get a heap and helping of Helena Bottom Carter, just kind of manic crazy, the kind of thing that you really want when you cast her in a role. And then Justine convinces Elizabeth to go and just see what Victor's up to. Like, go to him. Go to him. That's what he wants, which, no, he doesn't. Right. The last letter should have been him saying, I discovered that I had another sister I didn't know about, and she's two years younger. I discovered that I have another sister. He only has one leg and is an anti-vaxxer. He has one hole that is tighter than yours, and his name is Bobby D. I call him Sonny D if the weather's right. After she reveals this, we we go back to Victor, who steals Hans Gruber's brain, and he shops for more bodies. This is why I think you need the Igor in a movie like this, because otherwise he's just showing up and he's like, I'll take that one and that one. And does that one have all its fingers? I will have that one too. And then it's up to him to get these bodies home. And at least in the Igor based films, it made some kind of sense because you had your humpbacked knucklehead, right? To, to go deal with this stuff. We also get the reveal that he is buying buckets of amniotic fluid just showing up outside of, I, I guess, nursemaids places. As soon as they see him, like as soon as someone's water breaks, he has some kind of amniotic fluid spider sense where he just shows up and is like, huh, you got anything for me? And they're like, yeah, weirdo. Just give me the money and here's your bucket of amniotic sack fluid. It's an unnecessary detail in this movie. I disagree. I think it's a very important detail that just doesn't make any goddamn sense. I think as he's reading Waldman's notes, and again, it's Waldman's brain that he steals, his mentor's brain that he's going to plug into this dead guy to bring to life. So we got a one-legged beggar. And then we're going to put put Waldman's brain into his body and bring this back to life. And he talks about like the nutrients needed. And again, this amniotic fluid of watching whatever homeless women blast out birth fluid into a bucket while, while midwives take a couple of shekels for whatever they're exchanging. The other thing that we haven't really touched on is that for some inexplicable reason, Victor Frankenstein has a giant tank filled with electric eels in his attic of this experimentatorium. Why isn't it lightning? We touched on this earlier. It doesn't make any sense that electric eels are going to be the source of what brings this creature to life. Yeah, or or some combination of the two or something. But it's all just a bunch of half-baked nonsense. It's a really unfortunate thing because you want the scene... Look, I know it's hack at this point, potentially, but as someone who enjoys a good gothic horror film, the idea of cranking the platform up in the height of a storm as wind and rain are blowing and forked lightning is firing all around and you've got this big device hooked up to the platform and this dead body sitting on top of it. And when the electricity hits it, it's going to start jerking and, and glowing from the inside out. And you briefly see it's skeleton and all that stuff. I love all that stuff. You know, what's not as cool, a bunch of fucking eels biting a dead body. I think the way also that you could have potentially gotten around this is if you could have had more of a back and forth between Aiden Quinn and, Dr. Frankenstein in their conversation, kind of like you saw in The Princess Bride with Peter Falk 
and Fred Savage, where yeah, where Aiden Quinn is like, why the fuck did you use a bunch of eels? You were talking about lightning a minute ago. Well, it turns out that lightning's too unpredictable, but the eels, you know, blah blah blah. Right, right, right. Fan fiction established that. Or if you really want to embrace the source of it, it's like, and that was the point that I just, I, how I was going to do this. How did you bring to life? Like, I'm not going to tell you, you know, like I had this process, but, but I want to keep it secret because I don't want other people to repeat it. And in this case, it's really puzzling as to why electric eels are being used. But you know what? We're just, we'll, we'll get past that until we bring it up here in a few minutes. Also, just for what it's worth, quick time check. We're about an hour into this movie review and we do not have a creature yet. This movie is two hours and three minutes long. What in the ever living fuck? So Victor's close to lighting this sucker up and then who shows up but Henry, his buddy and Elizabeth, his girlfriend wife. And Henry tells Victor that the city is going to be put under quarantine due to a cholera outbreak. Elizabeth shows up just to see what's doing. And then Victor lets Elizabeth in. She calls him out for looking like a wreck and just stinking of B.O. Um, Victor says that he's going to choose his work over Elizabeth, you know, kind of when push comes to shove. And then Elizabeth just turns around and leaves, which that had to be a long trip home for her. So then we now get to see Victor running through his lab and he's just fully dressed up like Steven Tyler. It's this full length gold and red robe. His it's opened up showing off some pretty impressive ab work. Um, <laughs> and he's just dashing through his lab and then he drops the robe just to go full on shirtless. And he gets to work on this cadaver and reanimating this thing and this tank that he's built. He plunges needles into the tank that go into the body he adds electricity from some, I guess, some internal charges, and then he drops all those electric eels into the tank. They attack the body, which brings it back to life. The body's eyes open, and Victor is happy. Then he turns off the juice, and then the eyes on the body are closed, and then he is sad until, kafump, the creature's hand bangs on the wall of the tank, which explodes the top pops off and then amniotic fluid i'm guessing just sprays everywhere Mm -hmm. delicious of course victor approaches the tank the creature leaps up and then it, it knocks over the tank spilling all of the amniotic fluid it is gallons of this stuff that must have taken weeks if not months to collect and then i'm assuming all of the electric eels are now all over the floor flip flopping around Mm mm-hmm We are in the attic of a building. Can you imagine being the downstairs neighbors in this building? For weeks now, you have been hearing crazy shit from upstairs. All the banging, chains rattling, banging on the roof with your old primitive broom. Like, hey, some of us got to work in the morning, you know? And all of a sudden, through the cracks of the ceiling, (laughs) comes a bunch of salty fluid that you can't quite place, as well as a shit ton of electric eels. You are going to be livid. Could you imagine calling your landlord and complaining about that? And you know you're saying that it was water. Right. You know, like, uh-huh. like there's a bunch of water dripping through here. And then when you found like, no, no, it's not water. It's amniotic fluid from random pregnant women. <laughs> he did what up there? <laughs> Look, I don't mean to be a real pain, but I better be getting me discount on some rent next month. The fact that somebody's not banging on Victor Frankenstein's attic apartment every night. I'm just like, hey, what are you doing in there? 
Me and the missus is trying to have a shepherd's pie or whatnot. All we hear up here is you banging around electricity, making our ass stand up on end. They're eels all over the floor. It, it doesn't make any sense. So <laughs> guess we're eating tonight, Brenda. We got eel stew, <laughs> pickled eels. It's manna from heaven. It is <laughs> <laughs> literally. Yeah. Victor goes over and picks up the monster, kind of bangs him on the back. And the two of them slip and slide in this goop for way too long. And I think that because they did quite a few takes and Branna didn't want all this to go to waste, he just included it in the movie. And during this scene, you get to see the creature's dick, which is fun. Oh, he's got an enormous schwanstucker. <laughs> For some reason, Victor puts the creature onto some chains. And then Victor, he slips and the creature is pulled into the air by the chains and then he gets clocked in the head by a two by four or something. And then Victor just immediately says his creation was slow and a malfunctioning nightmare. Victor places his journal that he's been filling all this out into a black cloak for safekeeping. And then he lies down and he just weeps himself to sleep until eventually he wakes up and the creature is there waiting for him. And the creature hobbles around and kind of chases Victor until the creature eventually puts on the, the black cloak with the one with the journal in the pocket and he leaves as Victor has rebuked his creation. And that's ultimately the point of this scene. And, and the thing that is interesting about the story in the movie is this idea that, oh, this brilliant scientist has unlocked the keys to life, has become a living god in that he creates life and is immediately horrified by his creation and that that the malformed nature of it the the fact that what he has created is in fact a monster is like that should be the point of the movie and this moment is it's not terribly well done it feels like there should be some kind of moment between them and there really isn't it's just Bobby D grabbing the jacket and being like, yoink, and just taking off. Victor being like, is, is he gone? Is that is that the movie? Can we go home? Well, as soon as, as soon as Bobby D gets out on the street, he is immediately identified as patient zero for the cholera outbreak. So everyone begins to attack him. And we get some really shitty wire work. Well, it, well, everyone in the city begins to give him this collective SmackDown, which speaking of SmackDown, this whole thing turns into an episode of WWE SmackDown because the creature starts body slamming guys. He tosses one guy into this pillar. He slings one guy by his arm and a leg in what was known as Daredevil Donnie's 360 windmill finishing move. <laughs> Call it the Frankenstein lobster. It's the closest we get to a mass of angry villagers, but our, our creature escapes by jumping into a cart filled with dead bodies. And it's a real bring out your dead kind of cart, which do you think that that's a, a, a good job to have? Is that an easy job? Is that a hard job being the guy who drives the, the cart full of dead cholera corpses? Uh, it's the one of the shittiest jobs on earth for twofold reasons. One, it's heavy. Because, you know, they call it dead weight for a reason. Also, you are driving around a pile of infected, rotting bodies. The smell and potential to catch said disease has to be crazy. Why they're not wearing one of those, like, stork plague masks is beyond me. Because that was a thing around this time, I believe. Again, Neil deGrasse Tyson goes, this is all wrong. Can you imagine him watching this? It would be like watching someone with 
OCD trying to to work in a candy factory or something like I don't even know the analogy for this of just of someone who who everything must be done in in groups of twos right. and like oh my god oh my god I'm I'm out of my skin everything about this is wrong right it, like when shimp gets too much cheese or something just flips the fuck out all of this is stupid another problem I got with this is if you're gonna take a page out of the original movies and do your tip of the hat, your your tip of the chapeau to the James Whale Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein and stuff. Why on earth would you do the stupid chase by villager scene? Especially when you've got to do this, like you said, the stupid superhero tossing people around moment, jumping in a pile of dead bodies. It, it's all just stupid. You know, at the end, after De Niro, Bobby D gets away, he escapes into the woods. It's like, okay, well, at least we're going to get a little Bobby D as the monster finding his way through this thing that we call life, as Prince once said. And it should be, at this point, kind of cool. Now we've got the monster and we're doing the more Mary Shelley version of the monster where he's a little bit smarter and more introspective and we can get to the philosophy of the film, which is the thing that I care about. I completely agree. I think that when the creature, you know, wanders through the woods and stumbles across this cabin, which is home to a mother, a father, two children and a blind grandfather. And again, there is a blind grandfather in the original novel as well. The monster hides with the pigs in this side, kind of like a, a lean-to or a shelter where he can observe the family, which again is definitely in line with the source material. And it is here that the creature finds Victor's journal. And through his time with this family, he learns to speak and read, which again, I think that at least in the context of this film, because he's given the brain of a very intelligent man, and we, we'll, we'll touch on this a little later about how he remembers things. For me, I was like, this, this at least is plausible in the, the science fiction narrative of this movie that is being constructed. When the creature finds Victor's journal and through time with his family, he learns to speak. But anyway, he, he gets some farming in. He learns a trade, not just to read and write and whatnot, but he learns a, a, an actual skill, something that can get him by in the world. Yeah, well, well, he goes out and he fills up numerous baskets of turnips and I think potatoes from the frozen earth of the family because he's got that super hero strength that we saw earlier when the villagers attacked him. And the family begins to see him as this forest spirit that helped them out. And the grandfather, in the following scene, he's playing this woodwind instrument. And from this, the creature learns to play. So again, he's learning to, to read. He's learning to speak. He's learning to play music. He's learning a trade, to your point. He's essentially becoming a functioning member of society. Uh -huh. In this sequence, it's interesting to watch De Niro, who is such a good actor, that you can't help but feel sympathy for the creature as you watch him not only attaining knowledge, but learning about concepts such as love and compassion. Maybe not something that he's feeling, but how he's witnessing it from the family, which is really a core theme of Mary Shelley's works. Right. 
And in this, you know, the first word that he speaks in the film is the word friend. And the way that De Niro says this word after watching the mother teach it to her daughter while writing it on a, a chalkboard, both the the foreignness of this word and the familiarity of this word. And then following this, he speaks the words family. And then he speaks the word father. And again, De Niro is such a good actor that even in the context of this film, he sells this role better than, in my opinion, I've ever seen it done before. Yeah, I mean, I have a lot of fondness for the Karloff performance. I, I think there's a lot of nuance to that. But I, you're right. It It is the thing that makes the Shelley novel and, and when this movie does work, because occasionally it does, it's what makes it work. And, and that is Bobby D performing under all this makeup but still being able to convey the sense of i am on the outside looking in and seeing what compassion and love and kindness looks like but that has never been shown to me i only know these concepts in theory as an observer and it's something that he comments on much more pointedly in a later scene but it's what makes the character interesting it makes it's what makes the character of the monster so compelling and has for a couple of hundred years at this point and it's the notion that this creature is so pitiful because he was rejected by his father and not given the opportunity to be a decent person. And the treatment of others is what forges him into the monster he becomes. Let's talk about this movie when it really sucks and doesn't work. Because we bounce back to Victor and Elizabeth, who's come to see what's doing with him, shows up and she's like, oh, my sweet Victor, I'm here with you. And I will support you no matter what, because I'm your sister, wife, secret lover. They tell Henry that they want him to be the best man at their wedding. He's going to be not only the best man at his wedding. Victor wants him to be the partner in the medical practice that they're going to set up in Geneva. It's a whole big like, hey, so anybody hear anything about a monster? No, I like the cholera killed a bunch of people. Oh, that's great. I mean, nothing. Yay, let's go on with life and pretend that none of none of my obsessive acts ever happened. We then cut to the creature who is now reading the journal of Victor Frankenstein. And it's Christmas time, which, as I noted in the intro, this movie came out at Christmas. So it's always nice when Christmas shows up in a movie at Christmas time. <laughs> yeah, it's a, the, the diehard argument. Like, is Fr Mary Shelley's Frankenstein a Christmas movie? You're goddamn right it is. The children leave presents for the good spirit of the forest that has been, you know, sort of magically helping the family. And and it looks like, to my eye, it was maybe cookies or treats. And there is this red flower that they leave for the good fairy. And the creature comes out and finds this and really accepts it as a gift of friendship and kindness. From my perspective, as, as ham-fisted as these scenes are, they really work. Much in the same way the story of the three little pigs work or, you know, Humpty Dumpty. I mean, they're very straightforward, but it all seems to fall into place. At this point, the landlord of this cottage shows up and he roughs up the blind grandpa while the mom and dad are away because they're behind in the rent. That's why he gets beat up. And so the creature just shows up Bobby D style and just kills the landlord was with a swift conk to the head on a, yeah. you know, Brains a supporting two by four beam. You just a katonk. Uh -huh. He's out. 
let me ask you something because this is a problem I have throughout the film, and th- this is one of the first times that where the, it it took center stage for me, which is how tall is he supposed to be? The height of the creature in this movie is it ranges between five foot two and sixteen and a half feet tall. Yes, like it's it, Bobby D size, which is about five and a half feet to like you said, the size of I say not a Godzilla, giraffe. but son of Godzilla, perhaps. Also a movie that's not very good. Still rather be watching that one. The blind grandpa invites the creature in to the cabin and shows him some kindness. And the the grandfather and the creature talk. And they really have, in my opinion, the second best scene of the whole movie where the two of them exchange ideas about how people are frightened of the creature because of the way that he looks. And De Niro sells this scene as good as anybody could. To me, it it really worked. It, It slowed the movie down and found these quiet moments of reflection and insight into sort of what makes this story tick. The blind man... Um, reaches out and uses his hands to feel the creature's face so that he can see him. And the creature confides that he says, I do have some friends, but that he's afraid to go to them because they are so beautiful and he is so ugly. And he's clearly speaking of the family in this house. And as I watched this scene, I really thought, I was like, this is a very beautiful, innocent, quiet, poignant, insightful moment in this movie and they don't exist nearly as much as they should yeah this should be what the movie is like it shouldn't be this bombastic horror film where electric eels bring shit to life (laughs) yeah if you wanted to do right by the source material then make it more of a drama where it is very much about this guy who creates the the monster, but you see the juxtaposition between monster and creator and how that flips at a certain point in the story and that kind of thing. And these are the moments that make it feel like this movie almost got there, where he's he's having this conversation with the blind grandfather and talking around the fact that, like, oh, I've been watching all of you and... I've been protecting you as much as I can. And then this all has to come to an end because we have to have the the family come home. Like uh, the, one of the kids has seen the landlord show up and the landlord like shoves the kid down. So the kid goes to yell to the kid's parents, hey, I got, I got hurt. He showed up and, and shoved me around. Talking, of course, about the landlord but they misunderstand this and bust into the house and see bobby d as you know this reanimated corpse talking to their old man and they're like oh my god we've got to get this monster out of here and the you know in fairness the the blind man uh is like no no you don't understand he's a friend and they're like quiet old man you're crazy and blind and we need to brain this monster with sticks it is the point where the movie kind of works because you're watching this this poor creature who wants nothing more than a friend almost get it and then have it ripped out from from under him the possibility of some kind of life quickly slips through his fingers and you know he he starts to become monstrous but tacked onto that i mean he runs into the woods and you see the creature weeping just in in such sadness and then he reaches into his pocket and he finds the red flower that was left for 
you know, the good fairy of the woods and you see him connect the dots of like, I can go back and show them. I have this red flower that they left and this will be the thing to legitimize my, I don't know, existence that I was the one who's been helping them all along. But he returns back to the cottage and everyone has left. So he burns it down to the ground. We've clearly turned a corner. Things are not going to end well in our movie. At this point, he says, I want this cabin burned to the ground. I want the family dead. And here you can actually almost hear Kenneth Branagh's direction as De Niro screams out, I will have revenge. Frankenstein. Oh, it sucks. It's such a bad delivery. And and just watching it, you can just tell that it, it's like, can I go home for the day? If I deliver this line the way you're asking, will you shut the fuck up and let me go home? And he does. And they do. And he did. And it's awful. It is the worst delivery in the movie, line, line rated in the movie, which is really a bummer because it is the critical moment you know it is the moment where he bobby d becomes the the monster that he is perceived to be as we want to do in this podcast we we constantly bring up how we would have made things better because we know better than these professional filmmakers this whole scene would have worked better with no dialogue have him go in burn that down and just let him the same way that Robert De Niro has expressed rage in countless other performances with nose flares and just his presence. It would have worked. You didn't need this melodramatic delivery of I will destroy you. Yeah. I literally, all you have to do is like you said, see, see the reflection of the fire as he burns this cabin down that, you know, his opportunity at humanity and just see the fire reflected on his face and just tell Bobby D look like you want to kill someone because you have done that in literally every movie you've ever done. I think he's done that in literally every waking moment since age six. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. So I was like, Hey Bobby, can I have your milk? Hmm. And just <laughs> the glare, the Bobby D glare. It's really frustrating to think that, like the fact that him arms akimbo looking up at the sky yelling Frankenstein as the camera looks down on him is such a hammy moment in this movie when this moment calls for something far, far, far more subtle. And and there's just not a subtle bone in the, in this movie's body. No. Or, or when they have a subtle moment, somebody comes in and farts in the room and you're just like, what? All right. <laughs> right. One scene ago, we had Bobby D having this moment where he's talking about how he just wants friends and, and cries alone in the woods. And the next he's shaking his fist at the sky. Frankenstein. It's, oh, it's so fucking dumb. The next scene, we get to see a stunt double for De Niro marching across the snow, dressed up as the creature who eventually makes his way back to Geneva. And then we're back at the mansion where, you know, the big staircase and everything else has happened. And Elizabeth arrives and everyone's happy because she's getting married to her brother. Anyway, Justine's not happy because she loves Victor, too. And Elizabeth shows everyone this locket that Victor gave her that has Victor's picture in it as a temporary replacement for a wedding ring. No woman is going to accept that. It's here that we get to see the three-year-old little brother, and he takes the locket from Elizabeth to run off in the woods to show somebody that we don't really care about. And so this kid's wandering through the woods, and he comes across the creature who is playing the blind man's wood instrument. And the kid sees him and just runs off in fear. 
dropping the locket, which the creature picks up, pops it open, and sees Victor's face. And you know he recognizes it because he goes, Frankenstein. Yeah. Uh, of course. Uh, Everybody back at the house now freaks out because our three-year-old little brother hasn't returned home yet. And night is starting to fall, so we create a search party and we're looking for this uh, missing kid. And then Victor shows up finally. And then Justine, who is out looking for the kid, she falls asleep in this barn. And so the creature shows up and just drops the locket on top of her. And then we cut to the next scene of Elizabeth in the rain, carrying the dead three-year-old kid, just wailing openly as lightning flashes and thunder crashes. The kid is now dead. Here's where things get really good because the next day, some constable shows up and says that Justine was found with the locket. Therefore, she must be the murderer. And good news, bad news, mob rule has taken over. And (laughs) Justine is immediately tried and convicted in the court of public opinion. They drag her to the top of a building and she is just strapped with a noose and tossed off of what appears to be a three-story building and just snap hung with her body hanging at the end of the rope. Everything I just described happened almost in as fast of a fashion as I was able to describe that. In fairness, it is a pretty good neck snap. It's amazing. A lot of this movie is me fighting to stay awake. That was one point where I was like, huh? Oh, shit. Did things just get good? And then they quickly stop being good. How is her head still on her body when they chunk her off this building? I mean, it truly defies all laws of physics and human anatomy. And I also like that once they they hang her, the mob there just starts chunking rocks at her dead corpse. And I like the fact that as Victor et al., are trying to like, oh no, don't hurt her anymore. The mob is just like, fuck you, get out of the way, we're not done yet. Like, I appreciate a good mob, I suppose. I love mob rule in movies. I don't want to see it in the real world. And in fact, my favorite character on the TV show SpongeBob SquarePants is when mob rule takes over. I've seen countless episodes of that show, and it's my favorite moment when just People freak the fuck out and just lose their shit. Yeah, it's like one of my favorite scenes of It's a Wonderful Life is the run on the bank scene because it's where everyone's just like, give me my goddamn money. Like, no, no, that's not how it works here. (laughs) They're like, fuck you, George Bailey. I I swear to God, I will kill you and your dumbass uncle to get to my $27, which is like $8 million at the time. They said. So we cut back to the mansion and the creature shows up and tells Victor to meet him at the sea of ice, whatever that is. This guy's been reading journals and books and all kinds of stuff. And the uh, sea of ice, meh, meet me atop high rock. And you're just like, no, he's not that dumb. He could just say like, meet me on the glacier or something. It should be more specific. It should be, it should be meet me at Hyde point. And like, yes. this is a place because he says, meet me at the sea of ice. And then we then see Victor traversing this ice covered wasteland. And I fully expected them to kind of meet up either at the fortress of solitude or, you know, some other iconic location. Instead, the creature shows up in this weird slow motion, like $6 million man style leap <laughs> where he pushes Victor down this weird ice slide. The Goonie slide. Yeah. Yeah. He pops out at what looks like the Wampa's home back on the planet Hoth 
And it's here that Victor and the creature have their one and only real conversation. And Victor learns that his creature can speak and that he can read. I just want to say this scene reminded me a lot of watching Vivian Lee and Marlon Brando in a streetcar named Desire. Because because they want to fuck. Well, <laughs> among many other things, or because they did fuck. In Streetcar, what you see it in Streetcar is two juxtaposed acting styles against one another. You have Vivian Lee that is using what was at the time this traditional Hollywood cinematic performance that was very over the top, juxtaposed against Marlon Brando, who delivered a performance that leveraged you know, method acting. And you can clearly see these two acting styles on the screen at the same time. And when I watch this scene with De Niro and with Kenneth Branagh, you see De Niro, again, who studied at the same school that, that Brando did. You see that there are two very different acting styles going on at the exact same time. You have Kenneth Branagh sort of displaying this acting style that is really rooted in stage acting. And you have another acting style. It's clearly rooted in, in acting for the screen. And their performances truly contrast side by side. It does capture what is great about the book as well. I mean, it's two actors who can be good. Like I like, I like Kenneth Branagh's Shakespeare stuff quite a lot. Uh, I think his Henry V is one of the best adaptations of Shakespeare that has ever been done. He's excellent in the Harry Potter movies. Yeah, yeah. I like him a lot in Dead Alive. I mean, it's kind of hammy, but it, it fits the movie. And what is un unfortunate in, in this scene is he plays it subtle enough, but if he just took a little bit of, uh, of a page out of De Niro's book here... And they just did a less is more approach to this scene, which Bobby D is actually doing, then I think it would work a little bit better. But it's still the thing that I come to this movie to see, which is these two guys, creator and creation, discussing the underlying moral problem of creation of now that this monster exists what does his existence mean what is his purpose and and it's fascinating this is legitimately a great scene in this movie i wholeheartedly agree in this scene the creature tells victor that he was the one who killed the three-year-old child and that when the creature killed the boy he saw victor's face the creature asks Victor, as his creator, you know, do I have a soul? You gave me these emotions, but you didn't tell me how to use them. And now two people are dead because of us. He immediately puts the blame on both of them. You know, you created right. me and I was the cause of this child's death. Both of us are equally guilty in this behavior. And then I, I love the scene where the creature says, who are these people of which I'm comprised? Good people? bad people. Victor responds that their materials, nothing more, which is kind of a central theme of the novel. During this scene, Victor is shot through the distorted impact of heat that is coming off of a fire that's been built between the two of them. And it's very subtle, but it's this subtle disorientation of his presence, especially in contrast to the creature who is shot very clear without any visual distortion. So when you cut between Victor 
and the creature, Victor has this, there's this subtle movement from the heat of the flames that makes him seem more unstable as opposed to when you cut to the creature, everything is clear and concise. It's well thought out. It has a strong foundation and it is, there's clarity, not only in the words that he's saying, but how you view him as a character, as a film. And it's Victor that's confused and kind of disoriented and weak in his arguments. And and this is, again, in a much better movie, the point where we see Victor becoming the monster. You know, now that he's been presented with this creation of his that is not just this mindless monster, but is instead this thinking, feeling being that is coming to him and saying, I need to understand what my life is. And, and who I am. Victor is in many ways the Rosetta Stone to that understanding. And Victor, as we will see, just flatly denies him and says, you know, you're essentially a mistake. That is the point where, I, I don't think it's in this scene, I think it's in a later scene, but it, it kind of sums up the, the creature's motives here, which is, I have seen love and can feel love that you can't imagine, and I feel rage that you couldn't possibly fathom. If you don't offer me some kind of compassion and love, then I will indulge the other. Loosely translated, I'm either going to fuck somebody, or I'm going to fuck somebody up. Right. Right. That is, I, I think, what makes the character of the creature so fascinating is he is he is capable of good or evil you know is the again going back to the romantic notion of you know philosophy and whatnot not romantic like the notebook romantic but you know the romance writers it is this humanist approach that that we are capable of of great evil and we are capable of great good and it is up to us to decide which we are, are going to indulge to to use the words of the monster here And it's so unfortunate that this isn't what the movie is. Because with these two actors, if you just dial back the histrionics and the music, I don't know why we've got this mousetrap device that slides along the ceiling on chains to hook up to the eel tube and all that nonsense. If you got rid of all that shit and just made it much more a meditation on creator versus creation it it may not be as exciting a film perhaps but it would be so much better a film yeah i agree with that so victor gets the point and says look look i'll make you a mate and victor returns to the mansion and tells elizabeth that they've got to delay the wedding by a month and she doesn't take it too well and she gives him a real earful Victor sets up shop and pulls out his metal rejuvenation chamber and all his fancy science stuff. And Elizabeth then proceeds to pack up her bag because she's sick of Victor's bullshit. Victor gets everything, you know, set up for this reanimation part two. And the creature then brings Justine's dead body to Victor as the vessel for his bride. And Victor's like, hey, I'm not doing that because he knows her. And then the the creature says, deny me my wedding night and I will be with you on yours. Which is a pretty good and line. I've only said that a handful of times in my life, but every time I did, I meant it and I felt awesome. If that gay couple had said that to that cake baker out in Colorado, that motherfucker would have baked them a cake. Uh, either that or had a wedding night that really opened his eyes some. <laughs> Probably found out a couple of things he liked he didn't know from before. 
you queer fellas are are all right. Not only do you get all the cakes you cakes you want, you can hit my back door anytime. See, that's what happens. You stick a finger in the bud, and you bring something back to life, Wiping <laughs> something that was dead inside of them. <laughs> yeah, that's that's been my experience as an older man dating. <laughs> you put a finger in the bud, something comes back to life. Victor runs downstairs and he stops Elizabeth before she leaves because he is a sad, selfish asshole. He tells her that he's frightened and that he's done something terrible and evil. Here's what I want to know. What do you think ran through her mind when he said that? Because it clearly wasn't that, hmm, I'll bet he's reanimated a human corpse. It's, you know, secret family in Vienna or something of just like, look, I got I got to go murder someone so that we never hear from them again. I was thinking it was may- maybe that he had sex with a corpse, not brought back a corpse from the dead. But he went up the pooper of a corpse. Any hole or hand. Clearly, he fucked a monkey hand earlier. When I got caught and- doing that, I was like, no, 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 this is just practice, baby. This is so I'm I'm better. Right turn, Clyde. <laughs> yeah. This whole apology uh, scene is just overflowing, and it's over the top with stage acting. The only time I've seen it worse is during that academic decathlon in the finale of Billy Madison. You know, when Adam Sandler and Bradley Whitford are doing the to be... Or not to be? <laughs> that is the question. Just watching these two try to upstage one another is just nauseating. It's also hilarious to me that I keep forgetting that Bradley Whitford is in Billy Madison until it gets brought up. I'm like, oh, right. Somehow he seems too good for that movie. I knew him in that before I knew him in The West Wing and other things. So that was sort of my first impression. And when I watched The West Wing, I'm like, what is that idiot doing in here? <laughs> right. What? Is, what is that, you know, uh, Adam Sandler stable of actors? <laughs> How did that make its way into prestige dramas? During this over-actathon, Elizabeth then asks Victor if he will marry her because, you know, She's progressive. She says, marry me now and then tomorrow you can tell me the full truth. Which, ladies, that's a bad idea. So they are going to get married immediately. Meaning within the hour. Uh Uh-huh. Which, whatever. This brother and sister who are way too close. Let's just recap this, okay? They just buried their three-year-old younger brother. Mm -hmm. And their lifelong friend and housemaid who was by... All accounts attacked by an angry mob and violently hung from the top of what you would call a Victorian era skyscraper. Mm-hmm. There's also a good chance that some of them have heard that Justine's body was stolen from her grave and arguably defiled. Mm-hmm. In light of all this, Victor and Elizabeth have had this major falling out so much so that she's going to leave the home where she was raised and lives to go live who the hell knows where, while her father is laying in bed ridden with grief over his dead three-year-old son and his dead wife from three or four years ago. Mm -hmm. At this point, the two of them are going to make amends and have what is basically, for all intents and purposes, a common law incestuous self-imposed shotgun wedding ceremony, (laughs) which behind the scenes, Victor has reanimated a corpse. That is going to kill him. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's that old chestnut. Love and marriage. <laughs> Love and marriage. Well, I think it's a reaction to the Ian Holm scene from earlier in the film, where it's like, you know, despite all the horrifying tragedies that would almost certainly ruin anything like a romance between us let's not be a stick in the mud like pops remember when he was on the stairs talking about dead mom that was a real bummer (laughs) we're not gonna end up like that are we brother i'm about to marry and fuck the only thing that would make this worse is if they were truly brother and sister um i mean would it uh yeah i suppose if they're blood because then you could have you know one of them thalidomide babies or something as a potential offshoot but I mean, it's still really creepy that at no point do either of them seem to have any moment of hesitation or sense of, man, maybe, just maybe this is going to be perceived as odd to the world around us. Maybe there's something we ought to do to try to explain to the world why it is that we're in love and are going to get married Instead of everyone just being like, who got married? Like, imagine if you were a friend of Victor Frankenstein's and not a close friend, but like you went to medical school with him and knew he was a little bit of a weirdo. And then you were like, man, whatever happened to that guy? Oh, yeah, you didn't hear. He reanimated a corpse and then married his sister. It's like, oh, yeah, that feels right, I guess. (laughs) This may not make it into the final edit, but where I live now. We have a next door neighbor that has a couple of sons and then the family decided to adopt two girls from China. Mm -hmm. If my wife came to me and said that one of the sons was now marrying one of the adopted girls from China, it would be hair raisingly creepy. Forget the reanimation of the corpse. I mean, just from from outside looking in of just like, what in the hell are you talking about? You you have to be Woody Allen caliber to get away with that shit. It's just fucked up, man. Yeah. And in this movie, there's so many other wacky things that are going on of just like, let's ground this in reality. This is just grotesque. Which is okay. It's it's the movie's supposed to make you feel uncomfortable. It would be less less uncomfortable if Helena Bottom Carter were marrying the monster in this movie that would be that would, less creepy let's uh let's continue to have our conversation because you know what maybe that might happen <laughs> spoiler alert it yeah doesn't. yeah well, you know true love never dies so they get together a group of angry vigilantes to run off and go kill the creature they're gonna put elizabeth on a safe boat to somewhere but once they arrive at the water it turns out that all of the fairies have left they're gonna to have to spend the night in some sort of a, a safe house cutting back to the mansion Victor's dad is dead in his bed and the monster's there and closes his eyes. So presumably the the monster killed Papa Frankenstein very quietly. He looks very peaceful, you know, that he's right. dead. Victor and Elizabeth take up hold in this uh, log cabin near this lake and it's raining and lightning to really provide some atmosphere. The house began to twitch and pitch. I'm sorry. Some random house worker reminds Victor that he should go upstairs to seal the deal on this marriage, you know, to his sister. Hey, how about you get on top of your sister, eh? I remember the first time I fucked me sister. (laughs) (laughs) I bet she's a virgin, she is. Get up there and you punch through the hymen of your sister, eh? She's a virgin in one hole or the other. I'll bet it. 
Yeah, gross weirdo. <laughs> so Victor goes up to the bedroom where Elizabeth is waiting. Ah, this is so gross. And she says, brother and sister no more. To which Victor responds, now husband and wife. Which, again, swap out a formal British <laughs> accent. Excuse me. I mean a Swedish accent. And make this Cletus from The Simpsons. It's just an outtake from Deliverance. You go in and you, and you have a man and a woman. They're about to have sex on their wedding night that are brother, sister, kind of, sort of. And just, you get that, brother and sister no more. <laughs> no. Husband and wife. Oh. That thing. No. Yeah. This is just gross. It's horrifying. It shouldn't be in this movie. It doesn't belong here. There's enough going on. We don't need it. Just knock it off. I'll tell you what we need. We need a lot of open mouth kissing and a lot of PG heavy petting that goes on way too long. In this scene where Victor and Elizabeth are, where he's groping her, there is an uncomfortable amount of nipples in this scene, but they're all Victor's. And he keeps like pawing at Elizabeth's corset. And then there are all of these edits where he like goes to pull down her corset and then you see a nipple, but it's always Victor's nipple. Yeah, it's like Helena Bonham Carter was like, look, I am willing to go a certain, to a certain point with this movie, but we are stopping well short of uh, showing off a little nip. Which is this movie, I didn't, uh, it's been a while since I looked. Is this movie R rated? Because you see a little bit of peen. From Bobby D. It's not real peen. He's in this slim, good body, body wrap that has like a fake ding dong in it. It is our. That's insane. First of all, why on earth? What is it that's making it an R-rated film? I, I don't know. It's not like the, the scenes of horror are too intense or, or anything. If you're going to be an R-rated film, if you've got that already going for you, why not get out there a little bit more with this thing? Like, if it's going to be an R-rated horror film based on Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, there is room to make that a decent movie. Or, or, or something a little more exciting, certainly. Yeah, I think this one could have gotten away with a PG-13 rating, but because it's so boring... They thought that they would be able to pull in a, a more of an adult. <laughs> hey, this is so dull. No one is going to notice. After the two of them are kind of pawing at each other, making out, the room that they're in is, it is a tinderbox wrapped inside of a fire hazard next to a child playing with matches. There are no less than 100 lit candlesticks in this bedroom all around them. They are everywhere. And as these two continue their dry humping, Victor hears the dulcet tones of the creature playing on this wood instrument. And he's like, oh, I gotta go. So he runs off to go kill the creature. Elizabeth then lays down. And as she's on her back, she looks up and sees the creature watching from, is it a skylight? Or is he on top of like a bed canopy? I, I don't understand this. He then magically is on top of her with his hand over his mouth. Maybe that's some of his wood fairy magic that he brought from the, the earlier scenes mm -hmm. with the people in the cabin. She says, please don't hurt me. 
And then the creature comments on how lovely she is and how she looks like she's coming down with a cold and she should really take some vitamin C because of all the dark circles around her eyes. Victor burst back into the room to save Elizabeth, only to witness the creature who then goes volcano from Mortal Kombat as he plunges his fist into her chest, rips out her still beating heart, and shows it to Victor and says, I keep my promises. He knocks Elizabeth's corpse off the bed, which causes her uh, brown curly locks to catch fire on one of the aforementioned candlesticks. And Victor runs over, puts out her hair, and the monster escapes, going full-on Voorhees out the window and runs off into the lightning, rain, thunder-filled night. Did I miss a detail there at all? No, but I would like to point out, I am a bit of a fan of doing things for the sake of just being cruel in a movie. And one of the things that I do like in this moment is when after uh, Helena Bonham Carter gets her heart punched out of her chest and is then immediately just murdered via uh, some hair catching on fire as well. It's a real like insult to injury moment that I genuinely adore because it seems mean-spirited, and I like that in a horror film. I agree with you. It seems mean-spirited at this point in time, but where we're going here in just a couple of minutes, there's purpose for that that, in my opinion, is misguided. So Victor takes Elizabeth's heartless corpse Back to the mansion. And here, Henry, his friend, is there. And he tells Victor, hey, uh, not for nothing, but your dad is dead. And this, you know, kind of solidifies Victor's plan to now reanimate Elizabeth's corpse in some fashion. Victor carries Elizabeth's corpse up to the attic of the mansion, which have you ever carried dead weight? I've carried live weight from, say, an easy chair to the bed. And been like, fuck, man, I know you're only 5'2", but this is heavy. I've never had the occasion to move a human corpse yet. But I've had to bury my fair share of pets in my life, some larger dogs. The thought of carrying a human corpse up three flights of stairs, one, not only sounds awful, it sounds impossible. And also... You know that this corpse is covered in just blood and most likely piss and shit as it voided itself. Like, this had to be awful. I I got distracted by the piss and shit portion of that because I started (laughs) thinking about images I saw earlier today of former uh, Olympic winners who had shit themselves in the process of winning said medals. (laughs) You say like you got lost thinking of images of being in the bathroom. I need to really call my doctor and schedule an annual physical. No, I'm talking about like folks who ended up winning Olympic medals and in the victory photographs as they're waving to the crowd that their pants are stained with shit. There's something I genuinely adore about the idea that this moment of intense triumph of years of work and effort concludes with you shitting your pants in front of the world. I've seen a few of those images where people that are weightlifters exert themselves so much that their buttholes turn inside out. (laughs) That is also good fun. 
<laughs> I'm a terrible person. Like, don't kid yourself, if, listeners. I've got a problem. Victor brings Elizabeth's corpse into this new and improved mad scientist lab back at the mansion. And then he, for me, unexpectedly just chops Elizabeth's head off with a butcher cleaver and then proceeds to sew it back onto the body of Justine that's there from earlier in the day. Mm -hmm. Which, can you imagine the smell of this room with these rotting corpses everywhere? It had to just be vile or or a real turn on uh depending on you know where you live we have had a, a long time spent with with this character and uh, under no circumstances do i believe that he has not become intimately familiar with the smell of rotting corpses to the extent that it's it's all just passing him by at this point i don't think for a, a single second that he it, it phases him in the least. So if his plan is to reanimate her corpse in some fashion, couple of questions. One, where did he get the amniotic fluid to make this happen? And number two, where did he get a batch of electric eels to conduct the required electrical currents to bring her back to life? You know, don't worry about it too much. Uh, I think it's okay. the answer to that question. No, it's, I gotcha. oh, it's, it's so stupid, Chad. The own in internal logic of this film just completely breaks down because it took him, you know, months and months and months to make this thing happen. And now he's got to do it on the quick, like, because, uh, because again, it's not him trying to create life. It's, I don't want my girlfriend to die. My sister lover. That is what this movie becomes. And it's really frustrating to me as as a fan of the earlier films and the source material and all of that stuff that this is what we're left with. This is what this movie has become. So after we expedite the reanimation process, Elizabeth pops out of the tank and she's alive. Victor quickly dresses her in her wedding gown from the one that she had on, I don't know, what was it, six hours ago? And then he slips the wedding ring on her finger, which is Justine's finger, just to make this thing official. And then Victor stands in front of Elizabeth. And as she sits kind of head down, he asks her here, you know, say my name. And then she lifts her head to reveal that she now looks like one of Sid's mutated creations from Toy Story. <laughs> like her face is scarred up. She's all jacked up. Her hair's burned. She's got melted skin. I mean, she's just a mess. And Victor and then mutated Elizabeth start to dance around to no real music at all. They're just sort of spinning and the camera goes round and round. Before Elizabeth can fully utter his name, the creature shows up to claim what is rightfully his. And standing in the lab, the creature is wearing the black cloak and the collar of this cloak is popped up and he tilts his head slightly to the left and it is full on Travis Bickle. Yeah, which would have been uh, probably a more satisfying movie to see that character going toe-to-toe -to -toe with Victor Frankenstein. You, you creating me? You creating me? I was just waiting to see how you were going to take that setup and then knock it down. <laughs> You're the only doctor here. You must be creating me. I thought about trying to set you up to be able to see if I could get a, uh, like, I don't know, Victor, could you milk these nipples? 
Could you milk me? Dr. Frankenstein, here's two words for you. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> it's probably my favorite De Niro performance, if I'm honest, you know. Victor and the creature are now both vying for Elizabeth's affection like she's a dog. They're both kind of beckoning her to come to each of them. And she goes over to the creature and she touches the creature's face and she notices the scars both on his face and then notices the scars on her own wrists. And she then touches the scars on her own face and she realizes that she's jacked up six ways to Sunday. Right. So she turns to Victor and it's here that she successfully struggles to say Victor's name and Victor and the creature again sort of fight over her. Then Elizabeth just takes matters into her own hands, picks up a lantern, crushes it over her own head, and catches herself on fire, and then runs through the house, catching the entire house on fire, and then leaping to her death. Right, because there is no rails on the stairs, so she just goes ass over tea kettle. Also, worth noting, the last time we see Amadeus in this movie, like Victor's friend, who doesn't matter at all to anything that happens in the movie, is him sitting on the stairs as Victor is creating, you know, Elizabeth, a, a monster, just screaming, no! And then that's it. We never see him again. Like, when that the place is burning down, you we don't see him running out, nothing. It's, he's just fuck gone. Fuck that guy. But that's the whole attitude of this movie is, fuck that guy, fuck this guy, who cares about this? It's incredibly, incredibly frustrating. The scene where they're trying to get Elizabeth to come to them, I started thinking about uh, Nicholson from As Good As It Gets. Like, I have a little bacon in my pocket. That's why she came to me. <laughs> yeah, she's she, she's a hideous monster, but she loves bacon. Put a little Neosporin in your pocket. Yeah, I had a cold compress in my pocket. So she burns herself alive, which is actually a pretty cool scene of her holding the lamp over her head and just crushing it in her hands and creating this firewall uh, around her, the shower of flames. It's it's a good visual. It, it doesn't make any sense because the house catches fire in about two and a half seconds, goes up like uh, one, of, one of them houses from a uh, backdraft. A lot of lead paint in this house. <laughs> yeah nary a a bit of asbestos to be found you know you might (laughs) trade a little cancer for life uh otherwise she leaps to her death and then we're kind of done with the story of of frankenstein except we cut back to the ship in the the arctic where aiden quinn has been listening to this whole story and kind of what i like about this scene is that first of all victor frankenstein has bored himself to death with his own story (laughs) and i i gotta be honest i wasn't far behind like it was a real touch and go for a while and aiden quinn is just like huh he died uh and then heads up topside to check out what's going on with this crew and they're like so where are we going again are we gonna keep heading heading north and he's like goddamn right we're gonna keep heading north i don't care what that old crackpot said and then there's a little from from below decks <laughs> and aiden quit and a couple of dudes run down and sure enough there is de niro as the monster holding victor frankenstein who is dead and if you can somehow overact being perfectly still and dead Brana somehow manages that in this scene where it's it's almost like that's too much. You're too dead in this scene. Take it down to about a seven. Someone should have taken a Sharpie and put X's over his eyelids and then 
As we've mentioned before, stick your tongue out to <laughs> right. one side or the other. That's the true sign of death is the, ugh, the Bill the Cat look. And then I'm going to kick my legs three times in the airs. <laughs> yeah, it's real dopey. And Aiden Quinn and his banditos run in behind him and they've got their guns trained on, on the monster who is crying. You know, Bobby D is, is shedding some tears and they're like, why, why do you cry if you've hunted uh him all these years and bobby d says because he was my father then we have an unnecessary funeral scene where the dummies decide to set fire to the ice and and build a jedi pyre upon which to throw victor frankenstein and this guy who they met like an hour earlier right like where did you get all this wood and don't you need why are it? you wasting your kerosene <laughs> on burning a stranger's body right you give it to this malformed creature and say whatever you want to do with this body is up to you by the way i mean fuck it incest <laughs> is fine in your family if i if i understand the frankenstein lineage right so he's not your blood father am i right yeah instead of giving him to the monster just letting him have his way with him they they have the Jedi fire, and then the ice starts to break up. And although I will say, there's one moment I like in this funeral scene where a bunch of the crew members are like, "Should we just murder this thing?" And he's like, "No, no, no. <laughs> he has as much a right to be here as any of us. More, in are fact, you sure. Yeah." And they're just like, "Are you? Because we got guns right here. It's the like." <laughs> The Seth Green from Austin Powers of like, look, I got a gun in my room. I'll go get it right now and we'll shoot this monster and he'll be dead. And that seems like the right thing to do because according to the story that we heard with because we put a cup to the door as Kenneth Brown. We had to take shifts because it was so fucking boring. So we all stitched the story together afterwards. And we could murder this thing right now. He's like, no, 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 no. no we're, it's cool. He's He's all depressed. Look. If we know anything, you don't kill a monster when they're sad. The ice starts to break up. The ice is gonna break, said Christopher Walken in the Dead Zone. Uh, one of the great line deliveries of all time, uh, unlike any in this film. They have to rush to the ship to get free of the, the ice flow before they drown in the cold, cold waters. And the monster swims over to Frankenstein on his Jedi pyre with a torch in his hand keeping it above the water line like i don't want to get this wet i got a whole plan then he climbs up onto the ice and as aiden quinn et al watch from the railings of this ship that is now broken free of the ice bobby d sets fire to both himself and victor frankenstein who is dead and yet somehow <laughs> is like acting that's the end of the movie is them watching this chunk of ice float off with flames burning and the crew is like, hey, do we have to mutiny? Remember when we were talking about that at the beginning of the movie? And Anquit's like, no, nah, fuck that. We're going home because I have learned a valuable lesson. The story didn't teach me. I had to see the monster before I was convinced. Well, sure. And now that I've seen the monster, I'm like, shit. What If I keep going north, I might make a monster, I guess? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and that's it. And then roll credit. Yeah, I mean, I'm not 100% sure what the threat was if he had kept on his journey i guess that he would have killed people and and whatnot i think the threat would have been that he met santa claus and the crew would have killed him i've often wondered like for the people that were like the race to get to the north pole i'm like how did you fucking know when you got there we followed our compass 
And then we kept going, it said north. And then when we took one step further, it suddenly pointed south. So yeah. that's when we knew we were there. Yeah, I think that's right. Again, if you haven't seen it, it, it is not a Frankenstein kind of story. And yet the recent series, The Terror, is a fantastic story of being in the arctic and and all the horrible things that sort of behavior can lead to the dangers of exploration of going somewhere that you were not intended to go kind of thing it's really a bummer that this movie isn't better there are flashes of it being pretty good it's just so dull it's so boring and it's so overblown and when you talked about in the introduction that this movie never saw a scene that it it couldn't turn to 11 and that's the whole problem with this movie is that it's just too much it delves too much into this stupid love affair that is kind of creepy and weird and gross and uh, I would rather watch Bram Stoker's Dracula twice in a row than watch this one more time I I think that there are certain film adaptations that truly want to make an accurate visual representation of the literary source material. And sometimes you just should never do that. And I don't know that Frankenstein is a form of storytelling that doesn't necessarily lend itself to film. One example that really hit me was Winston Groom's book, Forrest Gump, which I think that you and I have both read. And I think that pretty much, you know, everybody's seen the movie, It's not a very good book, but made a very, very entertaining film. And if you had made the book Forrest Gump as it was written, there's a whole sequence where Forrest Gump is in outer space with an orangutan. As much as I want to see that, it's not a very good movie. It's just fucked up and weird. I disagree that you you can't make a good adaptation of Frankenstein by basing on the source material. It's just, you got to cut out all the stupid love affair bullshit and make it make the movie about what it it's should be about, which is what the book is about, which is the moral quandary of creation. I haven't dug into any BBC adaptations or Australian government sponsored television version of this, but I don't know that there's really been a true accurate interpretation of the novel that comes any closer than this one does. And this one's not very good, but there may be one that's still out there. There may be one in the future, but I think if you watch that faithful interpretation, it's going to be wildly different than the broader mythology that is the idea of Frankenstein. It's going to be much more, as Frank Darabont said, it's going to be quiet and it's going to find the importance in the subtle moments as opposed to something that is lightning strikes and it's alive and villagers and torches. I feel like I am missing one movie. There was like a television version that I feel like was fairly close to the source material. The Monsters? That's what it was called. With the sexy vampire? Yes! You thought Lily and Munster was sexy? Yeah, of course I did. I also have a thing for Morticia Adams, so I have a type. It feels like there was there was a, a television adaptation that was... Uh, that was pretty close. Actually, if you want a really good version of the Mad Scientist story, I would recommend the movie May, the Lucky McKee film with Angela Bettis, which is a great modern-day Mad Scientist movie. And if you've never seen it, you should absolutely watch The Bride of Frankenstein. I mean, I know we'll, we'll talk about that in more detail uh, at another time, 
But if you've never seen it, you should absolutely 100% watch that movie because it is it's it's tremendous there is absolutely nothing wrong with bride of frankenstein i think it's an absolutely phenomenal film so that is 1994's mary shelley's frankenstein starring kenneth branagh and robert de niro as well as others coming up on the next episode (laughs) we will be (laughs) uh, looking at a more contemporary interpretation of one of the original universal monster films starring tom cruise in the mummy yeah i was gonna say not the good adaptation of the mummy but i dare you to actually find a good one we'll talk about it but i you know the original film is fine in terms of the universal monsters it's it's not the headliner then you had the brandon fraser brendan fraser films trilogy was it a trilogy does that include scorpion no there are four because scorpion king is technically in that franchise yeah but that doesn't have brandon fraser no then there's the the tom cruise film from just last year the year of our lord 2017 which uh, was the movie set to launch a a a new (laughs) i guess second movie or third movie meant to launch a new universal studios monster universe it was so stinky that it, it didn't at least at the time of this recording no it did not but that doesn't mean for people in the future that they may actually be thoroughly enjoying a universal monster universe that was started with tom cruise's the mummy yeah so or conversely they could be living in a future that we are unaware of in which some new version of the Invisible Man has started World War Three. That's probably more likely than <laughs> The Mummy starring Tom Cruise being the genesis point for a shared universe of <laughs> universal monster movies. Yeah. So that's it. So thank you so much for listening to us uh, discuss Frankenstein. Come back as we will talk about uh, The Mummy, and we have multiple other episodes yet to come. So, again, as always, uh, drop us a line, pick six movies at gmail.com. Like, share, rate, review, you know, the whole routine. And thank you so much. We will uh, be back next week with yet another episode.